everyone, it's Dan. Welcome to episode 76 of Eventually Super Train. Hey, thanks for listening. All, all you have listened to all 76 episodes, you guys are awesome. And anyone joining right now, you're awesome too, thank you. And anyone who joined in episode 43, you're awesome. 44, eh, I'm kidding of course. This is the Short Lived TV Show Podcast. We cover short-lived TV shows that never got enough love, and eventually we will cover Super Train. We go three shows at a time, episode by episode. Generally, although sometimes I'm solo, generally I have a different guest host uh, joining me for each of the shows. So today's Amy the Conqueror, yay, and myself are discussing episode 15 as broadcast of Erie, Indiana. Then Mitchell Hadley and myself are discussing episode 26 for heaven's sake, of Bourbon Street Beat. And then the great Amanda Reyes and myself, my podcast pal, and I are discussing episode 8 of Masquerade. And I say, we dive right in. Let's dive right in. See you at the end. Better weird than dead. Episode 15, No Brain, No Pain. Directed by Greg Beeman, written by Matt Dearborn, March 15th, 1992. In this one, Marshall and Simon and family, are the tellers are leaving a rather familiar looking Chinese restaurant when a, when a strange, rather insane homeless man runs into them. Uh, they he, He's known in town as the Mad Whacker. Apparently he might be an axe murderer, or maybe not. And he's kind of covered with this black gook, and he, he yells out, he talks about a Sharona and Medulla Oblongata, and he's crazy. And he's got lots of contraptions and junk in, in his cart. Marshall and Simon follow him just for fun and end up seeing him being attacked by a woman dressed in leather with a ray gun. Marshall and Simon try to stop it, the gray-haired kid with the voice like this shows up and kind of gets in the way. The woman takes off, and they, they call her Mrs. Terminator. She basically says, I'll be back and leaves. Marshall Simon takes the guy into Marshall's house, shave him, try to clean him up a little bit, but he's still mumbling, and he's taking hair dryers apart, and he's just kind of crazy. And they're trying to figure out what to do with him, and they decide uh, they leave him with, with Marshall's sister while they go to examine the stuff in his cart. Meanwhile, um, the the woman, uh, I, I call her the red-haired woman, she, um, she is uh, kind of walking the streets going, Have you seen this man? Oh, my brother, I've lost my brother. It's the picture of the, the mad whacker. The gray-haired kid shows up and says, Yeah, for some cash I can help. She gives him a bunch of cash. He goes to the teller house and gets the guy and then brings him to her and and Marshall and Simon are trying to piece together what the heck is all these strange scientific contraptions that are in the car to this guy I, I don't want to give away too much obviously there's a reason why this woman with the ray gun is hunting down this strange homeless babbling man uh we do discuss what the reason is I'm going to leave it right here uh and uh let's let's go on to myself and Amy the Conqueror chatting uh, uh no brain no pain my Sharona. Oh boy. No brain, no pain. Episode 15. I think we should dive right in to discuss this episode. And with 
me right now, I have the great, the wonderful Amy the Conqueror. Amy, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, Dan. How are you? I'm doing okay. I um, let, let's dive right in. What uh, what do you think? What did you? Th- what are you currently thinking? How? What are your thoughts on <laughs> No Brain, No Pain? Uh, it wasn't my favorite episode. It took me about halfway through to not be annoyed by it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, be honest. Okay. Oh, I want to hear more about that. Yeah. Um, please. Uh, for some reason, um, the Mad Whacker's behavior kind of got under my skin. I don't know if it's the mood I was in when I was watching it or or what, honestly. <laughs> no, I, 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 I can see that a bit myself. Yeah, I, um, I, I like the concept behind the episode. It's very sort of uh, very eerie Indiana to me that there's this crazy homeless guy who's actually like one of the world's biggest geniuses and he's being hunted by this this you know, Mrs. Terminator in, in, in leather with the ray gun. And I, I like that. And the gray-haired kid's back. Um, yeah. And uh, – It was a very over-the-top, this one, like more so than their other episodes, I thought. Yes. I, I think – I mean – oh, I'm sorry. Like the acting and, and things like that. Yes, yes. I think I think the um, – uh, you know, when when like the gray-haired kid with his voice like this is sort of the most underplayed of everyone, then you know something's going yeah. a little, little squirt. <laughs> now, I, I will admit, I quite like Simon when um, uh, what what is the guy's name? I forgot when the when the the genius guy. Uh... Um, Charles? Charles, yes. It's Charles and Eunice. When Charles's mind goes into Simon, I do like Simon sort of channeling Charles, especially when he calls Eunice sugar yes. buns and everyone is yes. there. And the dad and the dad kind of looks over and says, oh, well, now, Simon, um, like Mrs. Sugar Buns, Mrs., um, uh, you know, she <laughs> – I like that. But, no, there there is there is like um like an over-the-top feeling. To, I mean, that guy – when he's when he's pretending what what he's not pretending when he's doing the mad whacker thing he is um he yeah. is nuts i mean there, there there is one thing you know you know what i you know what i saw him cha- who i saw him channeling and for about 70% of you listening this probably won't make any sense <laughs> but pardon me i watch a lot of bowery boys movies and he was channeling hunts hall and if you don't know hunts hall uh, I felt like he was channeling Hunts Hall. If you don't know Hunts Hall, there is a Ray Dennis Steckler film called The Lemon Grove Kids Meet the Monsters. And in that, Ray Dennis Steckler, as Cash Flag, is also channeling Hunts Hall. Uh, Hunts Hall was a very <laughs> dippy. I mean, it's it's impossible to describe. He's always bugging his eyes out and looking around, making wacky faces. Uh, uh, the guy he's with is always hitting him in the head with a hat. He's uh, if, you, if you look him up, if, if you watch the scene where they're shaving the Mad Whacker, and then go and watch a scene, something with Hunts Hall in it. Mm-hmm. I think I think you'll see sort of that's who he's channeling. At least that's what I felt. And I, I will say my favorite point, the, my favorite Mad Whacker moment is when he, you don't know who he is yet, and he's taking apart the dr- blow dryer, and you could see that he's like, he, he's yeah. not, he's not, <laughs> yeah, he's not like, he, it, it looks random, but sort of the more you look at it, the more he, he's like, He's taking it apart to sort of look at what it is and what it does, I think, kind of thing, um, which 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 works right. the second the second time you watch it when you know that he's not just some screwball who likes the knack. And I'm not saying all knack fans are screwballs. That's <laughs> not I'm not doing a sort of logic uh, puzzle there. Uh, although no, I'm kidding, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's weird, it's, especially like in that in that final scene when everyone is channeling everybody else 
um, there are bits of that I really like, but I I, th- I think it's one of those things where when 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 characters have to pretend to play other, I mean, I always go to there's an episode of Doctor Who that I can that's okay called New Earth. Uh, and in New Earth, there's uh, Cassandra, the last human being who's basically just a piece of skin with a face on it, mm-hmm. basically puts her mind into Rose and then into the Tenth Doctor. And so you get to see Rose camping it up, and then you get to see David Tennant very early in his tenure as the Doctor really camping it up. And when people go to the end of the Tenth Doctor's era, the end of time, and they see how powerful and majestic and dignified it all is, they forget how camp he was at the very beginning. And right. that's okay, that's a, that's okay though. But that's kind of like the moment everyone gets a chance to play sort of everyone else. I think it can be tough to not yeah. go overboard. Um, what what else? What what are some other thoughts you had on this one? Um, I actually, you know, started enjoying the episode more when they when Charles got his you know his brain back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so from there on, I, I enjoyed it enough. It definitely wasn't my favorite. Um, I did like that they had my Sharona as the yeah. theme music in the background mm-hmm. in like a downplayed kind of way. I thought mm-hmm. that made me laugh because people – I don't even know if I knew my Sharona the first time around I saw, <laughs> when I saw this in 91. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kids may not know my Sharona. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was okay. The, the episode all, you know, overall was okay. I thought it was uh, strange. This was the first episode that they put a lot of, um, well, in my opinion, a lot of politics into it, like the liberal yes. bashing and yeah. the, then, you know, the the Bush quail comments. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that was kind of weird. And yeah. I, especially at the beginning when uh, Marshall's father, you know, said, I thought he was about the mad whacker before we knew he was the smartest man alive, that, oh, I thought he was just the last living liberal in Erie, <laughs> yes. but I always assumed from their behavior and that, you know, Marshall's father is a scientist, that they were more liberal minded. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought too. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit, um, I mean, was this, did this air in an election year? I'm, I, I forget when this that's aired. That's what I was wondering. Okay, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, 91, been. so the election would have been in 92, right? Okay. Yeah. This aired March in 92. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. All right. So. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> and I then I was like, well, when would they have filmed this mm-hmm. as opposed to when it was aired? But, yeah, I just thought it was weird that they had, you know, they've never spoken about politics in the yes. show. And then this episode they mention liberals more than once. And um, the lady Terminator, Eunice, um, <laughs> you know, makes a disparaging comment about Democrats or something like yeah. that. So I don't know. I just thought it was kind of kind of strange. <laughs> and, and then they do say something which I I didn't fully understand. And um, well, I guess where it's like they wanted to use his device, the the brainalyzer, correct? I think that's right. Um, to um, yep, the brainalyzer. <laughs> to um, they were she was Eunice was in contact with Ed Neese to put MacGyver's brain into Reagan's body to make Reagan's three times smarter for the 1980 election. And and my first thought was, not MacGyver, MacGyver, because that show wasn't on until the mid-80s, but I guess he would have still been... Was there another (laughs) MacGyver involved, like, in politics? Was there someone named MacGyver involved? I... (laughs) Not that I know of. There's only one MacGyver that I'm familiar with. (laughs) Exactly. The the, the only MacGyvers I know in, in sort of, like, pop culture and stuff are MacGyver, MacGyver, 
and the fact that in the slasher movie Iced, the lead the lead couple, the basically the final couple, they're they're the MacGyvers, which always makes me laugh. Ah. Well, um, um, well, Charles did say that his brain had been on that My Sharona eight track for ten years. Oh yes, okay. So maybe that was okay. What he was talking about ten years earlier. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, if there's anyone out there who knows of the great political genius MacGyver from 1979, 1980, <laughs> please, please contact us. But when you say MacGyver. It, it, like in 1992, I, I, or 90, yeah, 92. I mean, I think MacGyver may have still even been on the air, or it just went off the air, or something. So yeah, it was it was a strange kind of political thing mixed in with lots of other stuff, and um, yeah, and and the um, the Mad Whacker there, yeah, he's got a few too many annoying ticks and things going on. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I, I like that actor. I can't remember his name. I've seen him in other stuff, but the first like introduction to him and he's covered in some sort of tar i'm like did he come out of a tar pit i don't understand this black goo all over (laughs) yes yes (laughs) it was so the first like you know half of the episode i was like oh i hope it's not like this the whole time yeah yeah (laughs) but then it did it did get better yeah the um uh and i do i do i um i do like uh, i do like eunice the uh his wife um not just because she's rather attractive but I, I liked her running around with the gun and in, in the leather and everything I thought that was a fun that wasn't yeah, something I expected to see because yeah the way it's done is very much like Marshall and Simon are like let's go follow that guy see what he's up to he goes down an alley and he goes down a very like Hollywood soundstage alley where they're like on one end and it's really yes. bright and you could see the other end which is the other street so it's not like a full-on kind of <laughs> proper like dark alley it's just like a it's it's like that space where the DeLorean parks in Back to the Future Two, you know, where the the and the um, <laughs> you know, where they hide the DeLorean and then they and and Marty wanders out and sees the clock tower and the Jaws preview and everything. It's like one of those, except even lighter, and and so it's not a scary alley. It's just uh, at uh, I guess a quicker way from here to there as opposed to going ten feet to your right or something and and having to go a little bit further. But I do like. That the, the the concept of this this homeless guy who everyone thinks is an axe murderer suddenly this like futuristic woman all in leather with a ray gun steps out and begins yeah. to shoot him. And <laughs> yeah. what? When what was with that ray gun? It, it didn't kill people. Did yeah. it just stun them? I was confused by that. Yeah, I know. Cause, I mean, like Marshall gets shot with it at the end, and I thought, yeah. I don't, I don't fully get what. I don't. Yeah, I didn't fully get what that ray gun was. They don't. You know, I it's it's funny. I there are a few episodes of this where I think this maybe should be a little bit longer to explain, do some extra explanation. But I don't really want this one to be longer. I'm okay with it like no. this. So 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 I wouldn't mind. And maybe because she was working with the government, maybe she has like um, access to, you know, X Files type technology, Torchwood type right. junk that they could get to or something like that. I don't know. Uh, uh, oh, you, you know what I like? Um, the opening scene. What is the? Let, let me. I'm going to lean for a second, just so I can see. Ah, crap. What the? Um, it's what the name of the Chinese restaurant they go to. What is it? It's the Dragon. Uh, something Dragon. Dra- dragon of the Black Pool Cantonese cuisine. I didn't know this. That <laughs> restaurant is in Big Trouble in Little China. I did not really? know. Really? Yes, yes. I did not know that either. That's that's interesting. Because if you look up Dragon of the Black Big Pool, fan of that one. yes, if you look that up that title, 
and then it will come up Big Trouble in Little China. And so that's I huh. I I haven't seen that movie in ages. I saw it the day it came out when I was like 13 or something, but I haven't seen it in ages. So I, I don't know where it is. Oh, you need to rewatch. I do. Yeah, I love. I remember just we. I remember we just went wild when we saw it in the theater. It was so 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 crazy. Um, yeah, it's so fun. Uh, and and um, I I like the. Uh, they're all coming out of the restaurant. They all have some very appropriate, or at least the guys do, have very appropriate fortune cookies. I don't know why we don't hear the gals. Fortune. No, cookies. they're just they're just dames. What do they know? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's actually gonna. I think in the next episode that may come up more specifically um, near the end of it. Um, Everything corn. I, I got the episode playing. The Mad Whacker just yelled at some people and went by a store called Everything Corn. I guess that's kind of going to foreshadow <laughs> something coming up too. Um, but uh, right. Uh, so so uh, the when they're walking into the restaurant or they're walking out of the restaurant, the opening shot, the camera's up in the air, kind of cranes down. You see, like. I, I want to say it's like that Amish or Pilgrim couple or whatever they were from the previous episode whose son was um, – he's gone to uh, Spain. Yeah. You see them walking by and yes. – and, <laughs> and I, I could not read the back of this guy's shirt just because it was a little too blurry and there's like a sun flare over the top of this guy when his shirt – you can read, read the back of it. It's basically a guy in a jumpsuit has a, a brown sack that he's – going into the restaurant with and on the back of his shirt it says eerie and then there are two words my thought was that it may be eerie dog pound because whatever he's carrying into the restaurant Ah. is still alive and cindy kind of gives it a look like huh and then walks on and i thought huh okay well you know that's there you have it there you you have it there you have it um so um there, I mean, there is, regardless of whether or not we love this episode, there is a lot of stuff going on in it. There uh, is, yeah. Um, what, what did you think of the gray-haired kid in this one? Uh, he's growing on me, and I'm used to his, his voice, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. He's just always, you know, so willing to betray Simon and Marshall, but then comes around at the end, like, you know, oh, you know, try to make him like he's not so evil or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, that's you know I, I like him I, I like that actor so yeah yeah so do so do I um and, and what I didn't realize I actually looked him up uh, just to see who that was and I didn't realize it was the gentleman who played uh, Eddie Munster in the Munsters yep. today um, which um, is a show that I adore but I also think it's it's one of those late 80s syndicated sitcoms like Small Wonder mm-hmm. where you sort of get the feeling that you know, no one really tried too hard because we really were just going to fill up a time slot like on a Saturday or Sunday <laughs> afternoon. So there's something right. weird about the Munsters where occasion Munsters today where occasionally they will have a storyline or something that's really a good one, but no one's trying too hard with the jokes. And um okay, but he he's good in that and I think yeah, he's definitely growing on me as the gray-haired kid. Although um I, I get what he's doing since he, he kind of doesn't have a home. He doesn't have an identity. So he's kind of looking out for number one, as I, I imagine I would if I were. Right. Um, if I were like that and not crazy like the Mad Whacker. But but there is something about like is this the second <laughs> second or third episode in a row where it's been like at the end of it he's like, all right, I'm walking away. No, I can't walk away. And he goes back and helps save the day. And I thought, hmm, maybe right. uh, may, maybe – um. Maybe uh, maybe we can alter that a little next time. Maybe he doesn't have to do that. 
next time. But yeah, he he's definitely grown on me. Right. And and something that I don't think we could. What is that tar all over the Mad Whacker? Because I've actually got it playing here where they're shaving him, and and uh, they got him yeah. in like mom's bathroom. It's in his pockets. It's all over yeah. his face at the beginning. Yeah, and like and and Marshall's hands are like covered with it. I I don't I don't understand. Yeah. That's gonna his mom's gonna <laughs> mom's gonna be pissed at that. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> I I did. Did you notice in this episode? And I didn't go back to check previous ones because I don't think we were meant to notice it was there in previous ones. But when you see the backs of the gray-haired kids' hands, did you see anything on them? I did not. Okay. Well, we'll talk about this more in the next episode right. then, because I noticed that the second time I was watching it. I noticed ah, no, something. I, I didn't. Okay, yeah. The um, uh, you, 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 I, I don't know if it's one of those things where you, you well, well, we'll talk about it in the next episode because it's not really sort of a pro, uh, appropriate. I'm talking about appropriate. We're, we're talking about Erie, Indiana. Who knows? We can talk about it whatever <laughs> we want. Um, uh, so we'll talk about it in the next episode. I'm going to give my notes a, a scan, and, and you give your notes a scan, and we'll just see if there's anything else here. Oh, yeah, Vice President, Liberal, MacGyver, Reagan. Yeah, I didn't quite get all of that. Um, yeah, it came out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess see. my uh, – the only thing I could think of is at the end when uh, Marshall is putting the uh, – God, what does he take to put into the their little – The A-track. The yes. And he calls Charles Chappie. Did I miss that somewhere? Oh, yeah. I guess we did. Maybe something got cut out. Yeah, that's a little weird. Because I don't remember them calling him Chappie at all in the episode, and but they call him Chappie and Sweet Buns or whatever he was yeah. calling his wife. And I was like, I don't remember oh. Chappie. Do you think that has something to do with the brain transplanting or the, the mind transplanting? Maybe, oh. maybe Marshall having had Eunice's mind inside his mind for a few minutes – X just has some. There's some residue of that. So instead of saying Charles, there. Yeah. yeah, like like sh- sh- uh, sugar buns and Chappie, like yeah. Charles Ch- Chappie Chaplin or something like that. Because he does do a lot of like slap stippy, stippy, <laughs> slap sticky things. Like I said, he is. I think he's channeling Hunts Hall, who who he was slapstick all the time. Um, and they do the closing credits, basically show him wandering around like the Hitchcock Mill, running into things. Right, uh, and he does have a good one where he kind of like hits one of those um, uh, pulley um, block and tackle things that are always like in mills. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure like Jason probably got pulled up by one in Friday Thirteen Part Three in the barn or something like that. You know, you know what I mean? Those those like big spools that they you know you haul you pull the rope and they go through the spool. <laughs> you know, everyone knows what I'm talking about. Do you? Do you? Please say right. you do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he runs into that at one point. It's a it's a good it's a good hit. But uh, yeah, I I had that hadn't actually occurred to me. I would say that then that um, okay. some re- that. some residue of her mind is still in his. So instead of calling him Charles, he calls him Chap Chappy. Um, I think the last two things I do you have anything else by the way? No, no, I'm, oh, that's it. The last two things I have are are uh, Cindy watching Todd and Donna which is some sort of soap opera, which is almost like a soap opera if they lingered on it more, almost been like something you might have seen in Twin Peaks. But it's just like a really kind of goofy soap opera that's just really, it's just this couple kind of breaking up and getting together again um, over and over again. And there's a great moment where um, Chappie is sitting with Cindy and Cindy's like, she's practically like, she, she can't take her eyes off the screen. And she's like, you know who Cindy looks like? 
because I'm rewatching Happy Days for my Happy Days podcast, Cindy looks a lot like a young Linda Pearl at times. Mm. Um, specifically, Linda Pearl from the uh, the Happy Days second season when she plays Gloria, who goes out with Richie. But uh, there there is a moment there where Cindy won't take her eyes off the screen, even when the gray haired kid shows up and pretends to be like Simon's cousin, or she thinks he, or something like that. And um, uh, Charles in his crazy state is like putting on a helmet, the helmet thing with the head and, and just acting, acting goofy. And there's a moment where Cindy's watching the screen and she's practically like just she's so excited watching watching Todd and Donna, I guess, get together again that he turns to her. And I forget exactly what he says, but he says something like, did they steal your mind, too? And she just kind of gives him a look. <laughs> And that's a great moment that I didn't catch the first time I was watching it, but but it's it's kind of a nice. Um, she she's getting into it, you know. Maybe maybe right. Cindy maybe Cindy will get more to do before the show ends. I think she should. Oh, um, absolutely. But I don't think there she will um, just because there isn't enough time left. I don't think. Um, and so that oh no, I've got one more thing, and then we will wrap this one up. I do like the moment where. Um, Marshall gets zapped and Eunice's mind is inside him and the first thing Eunice inside Marshall's uh, mind does is touch Marshall's chest because Eunice has yes. <laughs> large breasts and touch and kind of has a look like huh and the first thing almost the first thing Marshall does inside Eunice's mind is look down at her cleavage which I thought was a very nice like he's, he's what he's 13 14 that's hey that's what I would have done you know, that's, hey, there you go. You know, enjoy, enjoy. How many times, how many times are you going to have that happen? You know, so, so, uh, so I think that is no brain, no pain. Amy, if you don't have anything else, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Amy underscore the underscore conqueror. Excellent. Now, we, I'm, I'm going to wrap this up. Amy and I, we had a big thing planned where I was going to pretend to be Amy and she was going to pretend to be me. I accidentally called Amy Sugar Buns, and that's why we had a two-week delay before she talked to me again. Uh, so, so we're not going to do that right now. We're just going to end it here. Bourbon Street Beat. Bourbon Street Beat. Bourbon Street Beat. Starring Richard Long. In New Orleans. Andrew Duggan. This is the blues. With Arlene Howell and Van Williams. Produced by Warner Brothers. Bourbon Street Beat, episode 26, Twice Betrayed, April 4th, 1960. Directed by William J. Holt Jr., teleplay by William Bruckner, and story by Howard Brown. This is a Cal-heavy episode. Rex is only in the very end. Kenny's in in a bit, doing his secretarial thing, looking for a replacement for Melody as she's out of the country, out of the town, out of her mind, uh, wherever she is. And the, the basics behind this is that Cal, and I'm not going to go too deep into it because there's a lot that goes on. I got slightly confused the first time I watched it. Uh, but not so much the second time. I don't think I was paying full attention. Although, who knows? Uh, the, the basic premise is that uh, Sergeant Bogart, uh, um, who a uh, desk sergeant, uh, but worked for 20 years, worked with Cal, wants to 
basically he wants to pull a big bust of some variety and i know what you said is this some kind of bust yes it's very impressive no he wants to he wants to get his name in the papers more or less he wants to you know be a famous cop and so he goes to cal with this uh, thing tail this kind of two-bit thug around find out what he's doing and then i'll, I'll give you more info cal tails this guy finds out he's sort of renting a plane to fly him to south america and you only do that with a lot of cash because that's uh, it's an illegal flight. So uh, Cal basically says to Bogart, like, hey, okay, what's what, what do you got going? Why'd you have me tail that guy? Well, he, he explains pouring money to Cal, which is basically when you're in a bar and you and they do stuff on the cash register a tape comes up you know a receipt tape comes up in the register that says all the money that has come through there so and you use that to report your taxes well uh pouring money is when you the example he gives is your bar makes a thousand a day at the end of the day you take out that tape and you put in a fake tape that says you made 900 and then you're able to keep 100 without having to report it and now imagine you own 12 bars and you do that every night. And there's there's one guy like a Tyler Erickson or something. I didn't write down his name. He's not terribly important to this. He kind of is, but not, not terribly important. But he has, he's been doing this. He does this. He makes tons of money illegally doing this. And this, this wormy thug guy got a hold of some of the original cash tapes. And he's going to turn them in to the government if he isn't given 100 thousand hundred twenty five hundred fifty thousand dollars in cash and that's what's happening tonight is some point between like 9 9 p.m and midnight when the plane is taking off um there's going to be an exchange between the bar owner and the the um the weasley guy the wormy guy the tapes for the money and bogart wants to go in there with cal just the two of them alone and bust these guys and make good and capture this crook and and just you know reveal this tax fraud and all this all this other great stuff blackmail everything i'm gonna stop there because at this point you should pay attention to the title of the episode because things don't go fully according to plan i'll just leave it there i'll give you a blast mitchell and myself are on the other end betrayed this is a cal calhoun heavy episode it is also a melody light as in she's not in this episode before we talk about what's going on with that i want to introduce to you someone you're really gonna like god i hope so i hope you're not tuning out during these segments i think he's a good guy it's mitchell hadley mitchell how are you i am well how are you dan I'm I'm doing okay. I um, th- this is an interesting episode for me because this is one of those where, and I'll ask you what you thought of it in a moment. Um, but I'll just say this is one of those where, for for no fault of the episode, because the second time I watched it, I, I I well, I'll give you my thoughts on it. But I got about halfway into this episode, and then when I got to the end, I realized I'd stopped taking notes for some reason. Occasionally, that happens with episodes. Um, I don't know why I did that because I love Cal. But um, we'll talk. Well, we'll talk more about that, or this might not come up again. Uh, Mitchell, what did you think of this episode? 
I liked this episode, and I think I understand to a certain extent why you stopped taking notes on it, because I kind of slacked off in the second half of it as well. And part of it is because we're getting into a a mystery, um, which isn't a surprise because it's a detective story. But uh, as as Cal goes on the hunt in search of the truth, we get into a lot of areas that we probably will not touch on in this uh, podcast because we'll be getting into plot spoilers and we'll be explaining things for you that um, – you probably don't want to know until you find it out for yourself. So I think that that we go light on that simply because uh, we don't want to reveal anything. But what I will reveal here is that we have a case that Cal is not only involved in as an investigator, but frankly, he's involved in it as one of the participants, one of the... Uh, what what do the police call them now? Persons of interest. And yes, uh, yes. while while I won't while I won't go too far with that, what I will say is that Cal is most definitely an active participant in this, and um, you learn even more about about the admirable nature of his character, his sense of loyalty, his determination to do something to follow it through, even in a case where he might not have any skin in the game, or he might um, be doing this to his own personal detriment. He sticks on the case, and I think that that's something very notable. Uh, before I say anything, it was Diane McBain in the previous episode. There's that cliffhanger resolved, and you already gave it away, Mitchell. Well, you didn't mean to give it away. You knew it. And I didn't, which was the problem. In the previous episode, when Rex is, is kind of macking on the gal in the absinthe house, it's Diane McBain. She, she was in, she was Pinky Pinkston in the Green Hornet Batman crossover. She was also a mall on a Mad Hatter episode. She was in the Side Hackers. She plays Rita, who is brutally. Oh. Yeah, I'm not going to go into it. Yes. Five oh. the hard way. Yes. That's a, that's a, it's, mm-hmm. it's, um, uh, we're not going to go into that, but yeah, you and and the fact that I I couldn't and she she's I think she's already been on an episode. She was the um the yeah. one with the the beauty contest, um, which I'm forgetting the name of, um, but a few episodes back, I bet she I was wish, the the, the runner up. Yes, yes. Oh, or the other had, girl. Yes. Yeah, if only I had access to some way that I could the missing queen. Yes. Okay. So she was in That's a ton it. of stuff. She was in Hawaiian Eye. She was in Surfside Six. She was in Seventy Seven Sunset Trip. She's gorgeous. Why I didn't recognize? Well, no, I did recognize her, but I didn't realize where from. Simply because I think I was watching the scene and I knew from the way the scene was sort of set up that she wasn't going to be a major part of it because it was about him getting yes. away from her. Because so so it was he had like, that allergic reaction to marriage. Yeah, so so it was like I can either sit here and spend the entire viewing time trying to figure out who that beautiful woman is, or I can actually follow the plot and try to be, you know, uh, have make some sense while I'm talking. So uh, I chose the latter, but now the cliffhanger is resolved. Maybe we'll have another one for this episode. I don't know if we will. Oh, so well, you know what's really eerie? What's really eerie about this? Oh. It's almost spooky. I'm I'm sitting here in my library while we're doing this, and I'm looking at a book that was written by Ed McBain. 
<laughs> you know, Diane McBain, Ed McBain. That's oh spooky. Wow. Yeah. You know what? I was when we're done talking here. I was actually going to watch an episode of Mr. Ed, so it gets even weirder. <laughs> that is that that there is definitely something going on here. I'll tell yes. you. Yeah. 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 Uh, Ed, I don't even remember what we were talking about. Okay, Twice Betrayed. Um, yes. I like, the, I, I like this episode. I like that we get a big scene in Cal's office where he has all the pictures of his favorite, like, oh, I love that office. That's yes. such a great office. Oh, my gosh. It's such a nice, it's, it's, you, you, you got touches like that with characters, but this is, like, beyond like like the the set designer or someone was like what he likes old movies so do I let me really go to town and they just really went crazy and it doesn't on come it. up doesn't come up at all in the plot it's just there and just um there. and and I yep and I just like that because it's part of his character again mm-hmm. and you just see it and you look at it and you're like this this is awesome because it's like you know that. He he loves doing the detective work, but man, if you know, there's a Clara Bow. I, well, I don't, I didn't see her on the wall. She was probably there. If there's a Clara Bow film playing at the local theater. He'd prefer to go see that probably. And you know what? Yes. And you know what? I'd leave this room immediately if the same thing happened here. I'm lying. I'm lying. I'd stay right here. I wouldn't go. <laughs> I, wouldn't I, I, I well, I would, I would be willing to vamp for you if you <laughs> faced. The prospect of me or Clara Bow. I mean, she's not called the It Girl for no reason. Yes. And you, you just hear like, meep, meep, and then you hear, and I'd be gone. <laughs> uh, so so this episode, I, I the, like I said, the first time I watched this episode, you know, just um, when, whenever it brings in um, the past of a character or something like that, that always um, uh, grabs me. Because this Mm -hmm. wasn't a time where they, this was a time where they like had entire detective shows where, or shows like this, where they would never do that. Or like a Western show where like a character would never have like something recurring. So to have Cal meet up with someone who he used to work with in the force and who's kind of slight, uh, you know, this, this cop who's been, uh, he says he's 44. You know what? I'm 46. If he's 44, I'm 28 again because this. Yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 I agree. I, I, I um, because there's just a moment where he leans in and says, "You know, a cop of 44." And I said, "Oh, who would that be?" Oh, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. Okay, I get it now. Okay, yeah, and um, I know they smoked before all the time. Before he retires. Yes, yes, I know they smoked all the time and everything back then, and and but I um, I uh, I I I, I didn't fully buy that he was 44 but that's neither here nor there um uh so see, i like it so he's met up with this kind of this desk cop who is wants one big score as it were um and and cal is willing to help him out and um i just i when i actually the second time i watch it through and i took more proper notes um i i thought yeah i thought this was quite a good uh, episode. It's nice because there are there are points in it, and I, I don't know how far I can go into it, but there are points in it where, like, it's sort of. The thing is, I haven't actually 
recorded the plot breakdown at this point, so I don't know how far I went into the plot breakdown. But there are points <laughs> when you see when you see the people who have the money later on, and they like have scenes that go on for quite some time, and it's almost like the episode feels like it's going to follow them for a while, and yes. it kind of does. And I like that it's willing to. Um, maneuver around, and there's there's sp- there's breathing room in the episode. Um, I like. Yeah, I know uh, just what you mean. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there, there's a moment of misdirection involving someone going to a door, and uh, I, I'll say they're expecting someone. We're expecting someone. And I'm not going to say who shows up at the door. It's not quite like Silence of the Lamb where Clarice goes to the door in the end. And I'm not going to spoil that. You know, and it's like, oh, my gosh. You know, that kind of thing. But but it's it's a smaller version of that. And it's like because it's very it's very nicely directed and it's very nicely framed. Um, and uh, uh, and so, so, yeah, there are a lot of nice moments here. Um I, I will say, yeah, it is it is great to, to follow Cal around, but can we briefly discuss the other major plot line? Although it's a minor plot line, but I guess it's major because it's the characters. Would you would you like to tell us what's going on with Melody and Kenny in this episode? Yes. Well, that that is uh, the question that my wife raised in watching this. That uh, Melody is not in this episode and she's not in the episode by design uh kenny says something about her having gone to europe and that is a pandora's box uh whether he's using this as a euphemism euphemism for something because often women would go to europe to get over a broken heart or something like that but there again too if you're from money or if you have any kind of status, and we know that Melody was a beauty queen, uh, then you often would go on your continental trip as well. The point is, and and this explains why I'm being so ambiguous here, Melody is not there. She is in Europe, and she's going to be gone long enough that they are looking to hire a replacement for her. Uh, and Kenny is in charge of that. And Kenny has, as my wife pointed out, a very interesting way of interviewing uh, young ladies for this position that I suspect today we would find completely unacceptable because his criteria <laughs> for the job yes you know I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm not positive on this but I think <laughs> that kissing one of the applicants is frowned upon in uh, modern day human resources but of course this is a small firm anyway <laughs> it does beg the question <laughs> it, it does beg the question though is are are Kenny and Melody through? Is Kennedy just is Kenny just playing while the mice are away? Um, I I don't know, but he is clearly enjoying himself tremendously, interviewing these attractive young women and inflating his own importance within the firm, which is to be expected, and that's a funny running joke. But I just I um I find this. Uh, very curious as to what is going on here, because 
I think, and I, I, maybe I'm reading too much into this, it wouldn't be the first time, but I just get the feeling that there's something being unsaid here. Yes, it's... It, as, as, you, you, as you see Kenny doing all his stuff with these ladies, you, you see like um, a Cal like going through the, the actual main story. So he, he, he can be bothered because these are beautiful women in the front office, um, but he kind of can't be bothered at the same time. But Kenny can be bothered, mm-hmm. although isn't he supposed to be earning the law degree? I don't know what's going on. There, There is something... My wife said that, too. What's happened to the law degree? But they're changing his character completely. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's, it's weird because you, you don't know at this point if it's, if it's a one-off or a two-off or something like that, where they're just like, there's a bit She's of a sick. disruption. Is Arlene how ill? Yeah, is there a disruption in in the firm, and they had to have Kenny help them out, and Kenny was... And I also wonder, I don't know, who was there first, Kenny or Melody? Is this how Kenny hired Melody? Or or was Melody there already, and Kenny came on? That's a very good question. I had not considered that until you mentioned it. I guess I had always assumed that Melody might have been there first, but there's no reason to think that. I don't think there's anything that's been established in the show that would say that. And the only reason I, I say that is because I was sort of thought Melody was there first, and they brought Kenny along as kind of like a go-for yeah. helper. Um, the, the thing is just just the way they kind of look at him doing this. You know, they're not like, mm-hmm. look, Kenny, we, we need someone to answer the phones and to be a secretary. Um, you can't spe- You can't go through like a thousand women and I, I don't mean to sound that like he's you know like some crazy Roman emperor or something like that laying waste no I'm, I'm just saying that but he, he is he, seeing uh, a lot he's yes Apple. yes yeah and so so the the fact that they don't come in you know just uh, you know even as busy as Cal is just says no Kenny we need someone so please just just get someone rather than all this faffing around with all these gals with the cute legs and the nice behinds and things like that. I'm sorry, was that horribly sexist that I said that? Well, that's what he's doing. I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, it is. Uh, yeah, yeah, so so please, we just really, we need a secretary. Hire a guy. Do whatever, you know? And it's it's weird, too, because all I can think of during some of the points where, like, the, the people he's trying to hire, like, don't seem to have any qualifications for being a secretary all i can think is like yes. of billy of billy joe from petticoat junction in a few years she goes to secretarial school and one of the th- running through lines through petticoat junction is billy is going to be a secretary when she begins a musical career at which kate is against at first but then uh kind of gives into after a while so it's like i know that look i'm not fully conversant with what single women did in 1960 I was not alive, uh, but but I do know the secretarial <laughs> school was one of those things. Um, yes, and so so yeah, so it's an interesting plotline because it's fun to see, and it kind of breaks up an episode that has some darker moments in it. Um, and um, but at the same time, I, I, yeah, I I almost think like Kenny is doing all the secretarial stuff. And so they're like, mm-hmm. uh, who cares? Who cares if he's taking two weeks and interviewing uh, 300 women in New Orleans? He's still doing the secretarial stuff, so it doesn't matter. He's getting it done anyway, so he'll get someone when he gets someone. 
Well, there's another interesting thing about this too, and now I'm I'm kind of putting on my my TV historian cap here for just a minute, but there's something that I have noticed in other episodes of Bourbon Street Beat, and I bring this up because it's, I think, fairly unusual in in um, episodic television of the day. Not unprecedented uh, by any means, but unusual, which is that you have a certain level of continuity between some of these episodes that clearly mandates the order that they need to be shown in. And we see that, for example, in if we go way back to the time when Rex was involved in the White Heat pastish, and in the very next episode, Cal is making a remark about how low the accounts are. And it's clearly because Rex has been gone for months on this case. And um, this is another one where we see a deliberate order that these have to be shown in if you want to see them make any sense. Because in the previous episode, we alluded to a um, plot line that involved gardenias and different uh, machinations like that. Without giving anything away, because I realize you may not have seen that episode yet, but there was a character named Jan in that um, in that episode, played by an actress named Jackie Russell. And she was, if I remember correctly, she was like the head of this answering service, service slash, yeah. yep, yep, and, and, and they would take yeah. in packages and they would take messages for people and that kind of thing. And, um, and uh, uh, Kenny was trying to coax some information from her in that episode, and he was turning on all the Kenny charms, and um, she was, which she was quite receptive to, with the single exception that she wouldn't tell him what he wanted to know. And so she has ethics, but it was uh, there. There was clearly some flirtatious chemistry going there. Well, let's fast forward to the episode that we are talking about, Twice Betrayed, and wouldn't you know, Jan played by the same actress, Jackie Russell, is in this episode as well, because Kenny is talking about perhaps bringing her in yes. to replace Melody. So, it, and, and he makes a direct reference to having seen her in the previous episode. So there's no possible way that you can misconstrue this or that anybody could wa- watch it in any other way, that this is the direct reference to a previous episode and um, with with the character coming right through there and I, I just found that uh, that very interesting because again you don't see that a lot in shows of uh, this era you see it some I don't I, I don't want 500 emails coming in saying you blockhead don't you remember this and that and the other but so it does it does happen but i'm saying that in an era when these shows were made and often were shown in an order that was completely different from the production order i just find this a nice bit of continuity that pops up in the series from time to time where you're not just having the consistency of the character but you're actually seeing uh, a a, a character or a plot line or a joke or something like that carrying over in sequence from one episode to another. Yes, yes, and it's sort of like it's not not only is she carried over, but Melody was in the last one, and now she's not in this one. The previous one was mm-hmm. a, a, a Rex. This one's a Cal, and they wouldn't to do a they, and just the way the shows go, it wouldn't be a Cal and a Cal. It would be a Cal and a Rex, right? Maybe broken up with a Kenny. Mm-hmm. So, so this is yeah, and and it's funny too because 
the way they reveal her is um, sometimes the gals walk in, sometimes the camera pans up up their bodies. Sorry, uh, sorry, um, that's what they do. Uh, but but this one, yeah, very specifically, you you see like high heeled shoes with you know women's feet in them, and the camera pans along a couch, and you know Kenny's talking to someone, and then it gets to her, and. It. I mean, I don't know if, if folks would have had the same reaction in 1960 because I watched – I actually watched this episode about three hours after I watched the previous one. But when it – and I saw her and I was like, oh, Diane McBain. I'm kidding it. It's not Diane McBain. He, you already said who it was. <laughs> um, no, no. The, 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 camera, the camera pans up. That's how slow I am in the uptake. The camera pans up her body and you know it's – Kenny's interviewing another gal. The moment it gets to her face, I was like, wait, huh? Oh my gosh, it's the gal from the previous episode. Wow. And that's like, and he, he, of course, he mentions that a moment later, but the way they do the pan, it's like, to me, it's like, eh, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? You remember her, don't you? And then if mm-hmm. you don't, you know, and, and so it's almost like they're, they're saying, like, you were watching last week, weren't you all? 20 people who watched the show. I don't know. Everyone was watching 77 Sunset Strip in Hawaii at this time. Um, but but I, it's, it's, it is a nice moment. Yeah. Um, yeah I, th- uh, I have the feeling they had a lot of fun with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I wonder too, like when they brought her in for the scene, uh, and I don't know why Melody's not in this episode. I mean, my first thought was the fact that she's not in this episode was um, may- maybe they're either one they're having fun or two it's one of those things um where it's like um uh when um uh ebb and i'm sorry to bring up green acres and beverly hillbillies petticoat junction again and again but i'm writing a book on them so they're in my mind but is it season three i think of green acres there's an episode called ebb elopes where ebb's not there he's just gone and he put a note saying he eloped and he's gone for like five episodes and then he comes back and that was because Tom Lester got mono. And suddenly it was like, we have to write him oh. out of the show for like two months. And because they were doing episode after episode after episode, that's exactly what they did. And it's also like there is a, to go to Doctor Who, there's a story called The Mind Robber from season six in 1968, uh, where they go to the, Dr. Jamie and Zoe go to the land of fiction where uh, um, Fraser Hines, who played Jamie, showed up at rehearsal, and he had chicken pox. So they sent him away. And there's a sequence at the beginning of, I think, episode two of The Mind Robber, because it's a land of fiction, crazy crap happens, uh, where um, Jamie is shot by a red coat and becomes a cardboard cutout with no face. And the doctor is presented with a series of noses and eyes and mouths, and has to put Jamie's face back together. He does it wrong, and for the next two episodes, you get an actor who is Jamie, but it's a di- it's a different actor because Fraser Hines is out um, with chickenpox, and then he comes. So, which is so a brilliant thought, way of handling that. Oh, it's so it's so not if you don't know why they do that, it's like what the hell. Because there's just this guy you've never seen before going, oh, it's me, Jamie. I'm not going to do the Scottish brogue. It's me, Jamie. What's, <laughs> what are you guys looking at? And the doctor and Zoe are like, who the heck is this? And then when Zoe is told, like, 
you put his face together wrong. Zoe was kind of smarter than the doctor. It's just like, oh, doctor. Um, <laughs> but it's a be- it's a beautiful way to do it, and they really do it nicely in Green Acres too, because the the farm sort of begins to fall apart without Eb there. Um, but I, that was my first thought here was maybe the actress playing Melody Arlene Howell is that right? Am I thinking of the? Um, yes, it is. That, yes, you I, are. I thought m- maybe she just she got sick, and they they need to um, get her uh, get her out for a few episodes. I don't know. I haven't watched much beyond this. But um, uh, here here's the thing, folks. I, I think we'd love to talk more about the mystery, but pretty early on the mystery takes a turn that I'm going to try not to spoil. So that's why we spent 10 minutes talking about um, Kenny trying to find a new secretary. It's tricky sometimes, folks. It's tricky. It is. It is. But, it, um, you know, it's a test of our ability. This is where we prove that we're worth the uh, salary that we get paid to do this. <laughs> trust, trust me, if, if I could provide Mitchell with the perfect salary for this he would he would be um really i just i've sent him like 10 autograph photos of myself i don't know why he keeps bringing it up <laughs> so so what, well, what else I'll, do you I'll have? take an autograph oh. copy of your book that will be perfect oh, oh yeah 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 I, yeah that'll work um, um so, so what else do you have what on else? let's look through well, there, there, there again. Uh, I'm, I seem to be picking on a lot of little things and telling, telling you all how much I enjoy these little things. But there's uh, one of these, uh, these once a cop, a type of moments very early on when, um, when Cal is talking to his friend Sergeant Bogart, I think his name is, but he's talking to him and uh, he's explaining. The sergeant is explaining why he needs Cal. And not, not you can't ask another cop to do this. And it, it's it, there's a double meaning in that because he's saying I can't ask a fellow cop to do it, but he's also saying I can't ask any other cop but you. And so it 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 reinforces what we saw in the original pilot, with which if you oh, haven't yes. seen. Cal starts out as a police, as a detective, before he joins Rex at the end of the first episode. And every once in a while, you get a little reminder about that. There's one episode where Cal actually refers to himself as being on leave. And I think he may have just done that for a fact to be able to point out to this guy, look, I was a cop and I can still arrest you. But it's just another reminder of what Cal's background is and that he's a cop. He knows the score. He knows how things are going. And I thought I liked that little moment a lot. And the other thing that I like about this is is the the premise that you mentioned at the start, where you've got this this desk cop who's on the verge of retiring in another month. He's put in his years and he's never made the big the big score. And it brings up this whole idea of the celebrity cop. And you see that a lot if you, for example, read James Elroy, or if you watch something like L.A. Confidential, and you see how these these cops who um, were either uh, consultants on TV shows like Dragnet or who made these big, spectacular 
arrests, and it's easy to do in a city like uh, like Los Angeles where you've got high-profile criminals. But you have this era of the celebrity cop who gets his name in the headlines, he gets his picture in the paper, and that's kind of hard, at least for me, to appreciate now because in Minneapolis we don't have celebrity cops unless they're charged with with a crime and then they're not really celebrities they're more infamous than famous but the 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 idea of the celebrity cop making the big busts all the time is a foreign concept nowadays but you see enough reference to it in enough um old movies and shows that it is it's either a trope or it is something that actually was a fact and may still, to a certain extent, be a fact nowadays, but uh, in in a, in a place like Hollywood. But the idea of a celebrity cop is a very interesting one, and that's really kind of what you're dealing with here, that maybe not a celebrity per se, where he is repeatedly a favorite of the press, but a cop who is hopes to get his name in the headlines just once before he retires. And I, I always think of um, uh, uh, the, uh, and I'm sure it was on the TV show too, but in the radio uh, show, the 50s Dragnet, um, uh, you know, s- special thanks or whatever to William H. Parker, police chief, and uh, yes, uh, yes, and they bring him, he comes up in every episode. And I and I know William H. Parker was like a police chief in L.A. or the the head, what, what I forget exactly what he was. He was yeah. the uh, William H. Parker was they the named police the, chief. Of, yeah, they oh, named sorry. Parker Center after him, the tall building oh, yeah. that you see on the badge. Yes, yes, and that, yeah, he was a police chief for like 30, 40 years or something. It was crazy, yeah, or he was on the force for that long or something, And and but but that's, that's always sort of, in my mind, that's like William H. Parker of that. And, and, and the, here's the thing, um, uh, is that um, uh, the, the guy in this one who's just trying to get his one big thing in the papers... Um, he is possibly older than he says he is, and he's married mm-hmm. a beautiful younger woman who uh, mm-hmm. may may have another guy, possibly in Baton Rouge. And I always, she's got a great moment in it where, and I'm not going to go too far, where she's sort of sitting in a club and there's a guy playing a piano, and she has like a like a wrap around her shoulders, and she kind of looks in a coy manner at the person playing piano and removes the wrap and she has like a um, almost well not quite a sh- sh- strap uh, there's one strap but a lot of shoulder and a bit of cleavage going on and, so, and she just has that coy look on her face like you knew I was hot but check this out and you know it's like whoa it's come hey. hither mm-hmm. yeah it's sort of like whoa you know and it's it's a it's a it's a it's it's a it's a nice and and that unfortunately I think goes a little little um, further farther further I I guess it would be farther yeah. because we can't we can't nail down the exact moment um, then we want to go into the episode but I, I guess I I think I, I I'm at the end of what I have here um, so I'll just yeah say, the only uh, the only thing I would add. The only thing I would add to that is that if you if you watch this episode afterwards, if you're it's kind of like one of these book club discussion points that afterwards that you there's an interesting subtext to this episode talking that I think talks to the idea of eternal truths and Adam and Eve and original sin and all these kinds of things and the idea of the woman as temptress and and the the man as being guilty for 
uh, selling the woman out, or all, all these kinds of things. And I'm deliberately being vague here because I don't want to try to definitively say something. But there is, if you're inclined, as I am, to getting into really serious philosophical discussions about some of these things, if you're like that, number one, you probably don't have many friends. But number two, if you do, um, this is a perfect example. This is a perfect example of how you can look at this and find um, theological truths and stories told across time and all kinds of things. And and rather than looking at it like a cliche or, a, again, a trope, look at this as the approximation of an eternal truth. And I think it's a very interesting way to look at it. So I will stop with that because, again, we're getting on thin ice. It, it's it's funny. My my wife and I said that, and we never actually did this, that we were going to do a mini-sode or probably be a maxi-sode where we spoil every single episode of Ellery Queen. And we <laughs> tell you, you know, like, episode one, this person's the killer, and we talk about how effective the ending is. Because we ah. didn't do any of that in the, we didn't spoil any one of those. So there were points, points we were, we were able to go a bit farther um, on because, uh, because just of the way the stories are told. Yeah. Um, but, but, but I always, I always, I think I said in the very last episode of Ellery Queen that, yeah, I want to do this episode where we just sit there and we go, okay, episode one, this is the killer. Episode two, this is the killer. And we talk about why we like it. And, <laughs> and, 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 and we, we, you know what, to be honest, we'll probably never do it, folks. Maybe I'll do, do it on my own. Um, just, just because I'm not going to make her sit there for like three or four hours or whatever <laughs> and, and, and do that. That's, that's, that's excessive. Um, You're a good husband. <laughs> I think I I think the thing what you said right there Mitchell is that I think the joy of a show like this is that you can look at it as um, a collection of tropes a collection of cliches you can look at it as this show using the tropes and doing its own thing or you can go in other directions and I think it all works um, some folks might say uh, guys this is a show from 1960 that got cancelled soon after this um, maybe you shouldn't spend this much time on it. And I would say you're listening to the wrong podcast. I maybe I can recommend some to you at the end. Um, but this is, um, I, yeah, I like what you said on that, Mitchell. And I think um, if 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 you don't have it, do you have anything else on this one that we can talk about? Um, nope. I I um, I think that that's pretty much as far as I can go. Okay. So let Mitchell. Where can we find you online? You can find my uh, website, It's About TV, which is, um, surprisingly enough, about TV. I don't know where that came from. Maybe I should have been more obvious. But anyway, It's About TV, and it is at itsabouttv.com. Awesome. So that is Twice Betrayed. That is the, oh, good gravy, the 26th episode. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'm going to stop right now. Uh, because this is um, this is a um, this is a tiebreaker-ish moment on eventually Super Train, but I'm just going to stop right now. The United States of America would like to invite you to come spy with me. Tonight, adventures looking in your window. Some
It's Dan. Welcome to the French Correction. Not the French Connection, as I kept thinking it was called. This is the eighth episode of Masquerade. It aired on the, uh, March 30th, 1984, written by Andrew Schneider, directed by Peter Crane. I do notice one thing as I'm looking at the scheduling. This is prob- probably does not bode well for Masquerade. The previous episode of Masquerade, uh, Oil, aired two months before this. So there was a two-month gap with no new episodes, and um, that, uh, yeah, that that doesn't bode well. And I am here to talk the French correction uh, with my podcast pal, Amanda Reyes. Amanda, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm, um, you know, as, as we, when we talk about oil, I think we both agree that it was one of our favorites of the, uh, our, our favorite non-ninja-related episode of Masquerade. I'm interested... Correct. I'm interested to think what we what we think about. I'm interested to hear what we hear what we think about the French. I'm still confused that French connection, French correction thing. Um, uh, what we think about this episode. So let me dive right in. I'll try to keep the basic plot line as simple as possible. Although suddenly I don't think I can. Um, they we are in Marseille, France, and a, uh, um, a shipment of uh, med- medicines and some sort of special cholera related serum. That are supposed to that from the U.S. being given to like some missionaries. There's a nun there. Um, they're going to fly to Africa to help some folks out. It is hijacked by a bunch of Frenchmen. It turns out the Frenchmen work for La Familia, uh, which I thought was Spanish, but yes. I guess it's 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 um it's all. Yeah, I did too. It's the same thing. Because uh, I, I kept hearing them say La Familia, and I thought. Okay, they can't be saying that. I must be. It must be the sound. There must be something like la familia, family, or something like that. Like different at the end, but it sounded Spanish to me. But um, uh, la familia is more or less the mafia or the yakuza, apparently, of France. And they have, yeah, they have hijacked uh, the shipment, and they need to get the shipment down there. So what uh, the gang is going to do. Um, and that would be Casey, Danny, and Mr. Lavender, is they are going to, because um, La Familia, it's hinted that they're, yeah, they, they've got their sort of fingers into everything. So it's not, it's not something where you can just storm right in and take them out. It's, it's the mafia. It's, it, 
ask. Uh, it's too big for that. So what they're going to do is attempt to stir um, sort of revolt within the right and, and put put um, La Familia at war with itself to try to get them, the good guys, our guys, to the uh, all the medicine. And the way they do that is um, uh, the main guy is uh, LaSalle, played by Tony Franciosa. And he's like not quite second in command. Yay. Is a, is yeah? Is a guy named his second in command is a, oh ish not quite a second in command. Is a guy named Pierre De Delon or De Leon or something like that. And they've heard that Pierre kind of wants to either usurp LaSalle or do do stuff on his own. And so what they do is is the gang mm-hmm. of folks they bring in try to sow the seeds of hey look LaSalle uh, Pierre is. Um, up to something and try to get them them warring so they'll lead them to the medicine this that and the other um, um, who do they bring in on this bunch they bring in well first off they bring in John Saxon playing himself I'm kidding of course John, John Saxon is playing a he's playing a Frenchman um, named I don't remember what his name was um, it is Joey Joey Savine I think that's how you say his last okay. name Savine Savine but his first name is Joey Joey, okay, and Joey's Joey's leave, living illegally in Galveston, Texas, with a wife, and American wife, and his brother was a racketeer who worked with La Familia, and they 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 recruit him because he knows sort of the ins and outs of what's going on, and and he's going to um, uh, sort of get them in with Pierre, so Lavender can uh, sort of introduce himself into Pierre's world, which will um, because. Yeah, it's it's intrigue, intrigue of the highest order. Uh, the tricky thing with with uh, uh, Joey's character is his wife comes along, so it's a bit like that previous episode. Unless I'm making this up, with like the ex football player who's now like works for the phone company. Wasn't that an earlier? Like, in the, was that the first episode? Yes, that was the Fred, not Fred Williamson. Oh my god, it uh, was it was it? was it Shaft? It was a Richard. Richard was it Richard Yes, Roundtree? I believe so. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Something yeah. like that. And it's it's his and that sounded horrible that I mixed them up. <laughs> but I, I want to say Fred Williamson because I want him to be in everything. And so sure, that's probably course, why that happened. Um, so uh, it's it's sort of like that. It's a variation of that where um, uh, they think. Uh, well, I'm not going to go into that. You've you've seen that episode. But he has to he has to bring along his wife and his kid. And this one, Joey has to bring along his wife, but he's not allowed to tell his wife what he's doing. So she becomes very suspicious very quickly um then next up they recruit um i'll save i'll save the most fun recruits possibly for last but they recruit a woman who dubs french onto english films who they show her working for like fox or something who is also an expert marksman so they bring her along which is which I, <laughs> I, I like that i like that because they show her dubbing um something into french and then Danny shows up, and and you think, oh, they're going to recruit her to do French voices. But then he says something like, we know you do that. We also know you're a sharpshooter. She's like, oh, uh, yeah, I am. And I like that because your idea for Masquerade a few episodes ago that um, – the, the the things they recruit these people to do should be sort of like things maybe everyone doesn't know, like the plumber who you know makes beautiful pastry. You know, maybe you know everyone knows yeah. he's a plumber, but <laughs> he makes he makes Gross. the best. Co- yeah. Well, I don't know. Uh, he doesn't make them in the in the in the you know he makes them in the, in the kitchen. Um, but but you know something like that. You know, I like this one because it's uh, the recruiting of her because 
you think it's going to be that, but it's like they mainly use her because she's also a sharpshooter. And then, uh, let's see, so there's John Saxon, there's the, the sharpshooting woman, and then I think it's just the two brothers, as it were, right? I think are the only other ones, it's just the four of them? Yeah, I, I, think, want to make so. I think so, yeah. So so it's two brothers who are like demolition guys. They're first blowing up a building in Chicago, and one of them is very excited because he always, he, he likes to put a little extra charge in. He likes to have fun. I don't know how that works, like if you're blowing up um, in in the middle of a, populated city if you're blowing up a building can you put in extra dynamite into that wouldn't that be a horrible hazard but i don't you know i'm, I'm no expert yeah but but the great thing about these two guys is it's garrett morris and donald or donnie most and they're Yay. awesome and donnie most they is really are good. They're great. he's got a beard and a mustache yeah he, he looks really good does look good he's very he's he's kind of surprisingly handsome yes i think Yes, it's like when Ron Howard had the mustache, uh, when he reappears at the end of Happy Days. No, no, Richie. No, no. <laughs> I was just but, gonna say, don't even go there. <laughs> yeah, but 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 Donnie or Donald Most, Mister Most, looks really. I mean, he still he he looks a little older, more mature, more handsome, but he still has that sort of Ralph Melf glee in his eye when he's yeah. blowing things up and stuff. Yeah. And, and and it turns out they're really good. Um, they they work really nicely off of one another. They don't actually yeah, do much. Uh, in in theory, they don't do much. In practice, in actuality, they do more than they're supposed to. But uh, the the plan, yeah, and the plan is that they they've got various uh, machinations set up where they are going to um, kind of make it look like Pierre is going against LaSalle, and it, it involves stuff like. Um, uh, oh God! Well, I mean, I mean, the best one is that they um, they they steal. Pierre's brother's car, take it to LaSalle's house, and when LaSalle is talking to Lavender, the sharpshooter like shoots the cigar out of LaSalle's hand. They her and her and Casey mm-hmm. run into the car, sit there until they know that the guys, the thugs, LaSalle's thugs can read the license plate and then drive away. So it's like that was Pierre's brother. And they do stuff like that to kind of um create a gradually growing descent. Pierre doesn't really know what's going on and LaSalle is gradually thinking Pierre is, is going to double cross me and then maybe he will be. But that's that's their main thing and there's also a brothel. Um, Amanda, what did you think about this episode? Um, I liked it. I don't know that I loved it, but when you were talking about that, I wanted to point out, so we mentioned this earlier, I think even in the pilot, but I don't think I fully realized until we dove into the entire series like we're doing now how much this show is based off making bad people look stupid. And so like, like I think Donald most character actually says to Lavender, Hey, why don't you just kill him? And they're like, well, we can't because we need to know where this is. So we're going to discredit him. They say discredit, but it's, and it's less so in this episode because I think the script is tighter, but a lot of it is just really making a bad person look stupid. And so like, it's all like, it's like watching an episode of Rockford where Rockford goes undercover as like the health insurance salesman. Yes. And then it's like, I need to get into your files. Like, it's like, it's like that, but like with glamour. You know what I mean? Like, it's like every show that came out in, like, the 70s and 80s that had detective work where they all have to, like, pretend like there's somebody else. Like, I recently just watched A Police Woman where they, her, uh, Angie Dickinson's character and her boss, played by Earl Holloman, went undercover um, at a horse race track. So they made themselves uh, from the bayou. And Earl Holloman became Cajun Lamont. 
which is hilarious because it's like by way of Brooklyn, like who buys you as Cajun. And her name was like Eve Rondeau. And like, and it's just like they create characters. It's so weird. So anyway, but this show does that. But then the main thing that they're trying to do, they're playing themselves, obviously, like they take them because they're experts in things. But then at the same time, they're still kind of playing up that going undercover kind of thing and tricking people into stuff and, and then making them look dumb. So so it's interesting in the last episode we watched that there was so much bloodshed because I don't recall a lot of it happening on the show because it feels like they do everything they can not to kill people. It's almost like an A-team in that way. Yes. It's only unless their lives are being threatened that will they act out on it. And so so it's this weird, interesting show as I'm starting to, as we're getting farther into it, I'm starting to develop ideas about what they're doing. And it's kind of interesting in its own way. Um, now this episode isn't as strong as the last one, but it's, it's, I want to say it's more than just serviceable. It's a good episode that you can sit and watch, but I think what saves it, um, from falling into some of the episodes that we weren't as into is that it's got this amazing cast that all of different levels of what's the word I want to use. They're not all great actors. And that's no offense to Alana Stewart because she's fine in this episode, but she's, she's no John Saxon and she's no Anthony Francioso who's amazing in this. Um, or Donnie Most, who I think really dove into it. But but the cast works really well with each other, and there's a lot of chemistry there, especially between the two quote-unquote brothers, that I think elevates the fact that it's maybe not the strongest story. Because now we're starting to see, oh, yeah, they're going to make people look stupid. You know, we finally hit there where we all realize this is the episode that's like the episode we just saw. We're going to make them look stupid. And so um, it's it's just, but it's elevated. I think I think we're getting to the point where they're finding what their game is and they're hitting their stride a little um, with the writing. So, so it's an improvement of older episodes, but it's not as good as the last episode is what I'm saying. So I really enjoyed it. I just don't think it's like the best. I, I agree. I, 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 I think the, the thing with oil is that when I got to the end of it, there was stuff that really sort of stuck in my mind about the episode. This one, I got yeah. to the end and apart from thinking, hey, Tony Franciosa and John Saxon in an episode together, I didn't really have much. And there were moments when I when I had to really go back the second time and focus to see how they got from like A to C because somehow B yes. did, didn't stick with me. Like I'm still not – well, no, I, I guess I know. But like that long sequence with the in the brothel where they – Kidnap, oh, I, I put that it. in quotes, the, the, the prostitute who is LaSalle's favorite, and then basically give her, like, I don't know, a year's salary. That would be a lot, so I, I imagine they don't give her a year's salary. But they give her a bunch of money, and they say, just just hit the road for a while. Just just go away for a while. Um, just to bother LaSalle and make him wonder who did that, and obviously all roads lead to Pierre. That, that, that's one of those scenes where it's like, that's a that's a... It's a fun scene. It's a great brothel. I love the madam who's always like, whenever she speaks, the chest is out. And she's like thrusting out her boobs yeah. at you. And she's well, like, well, the the prostitute that they take hated Lasalle. She yeah. was the special girl to him, but you could tell she didn't enjoy it. And so they're like, we'll take that one. And then the guy working there was like, don't take her. That's Lasalle's favorite woman. And they're like, then we're really going to take her. And she's like, terrific. She actually says yeah. that. Like she can't wait yeah. to get out of there. And then they kind of save her. They're like, well, put your money to good use. Cause she's like, I don't have any other skills. And they're like, well, you learn something. And I was like, Oh, that's so sweet <laughs> yeah yeah i liked her yeah and, and then when the when the sort of the second command to lasalle or lasalle's 
um, the, the the guy who's in the brothel who who is there when she's taken. I, if I remember correctly, he says to LaSalle, I'm like, yeah, and they, when they took her away, they had to drag her away, kicking and screaming. She didn't want to go. Yes, that's right. Is baloney. Um, so um, I think um, I, I, one, one of the, one of the, the things in, in this episode, since we'd kind of uh, uh, seen, seen it before with the Richard Roundtree thing, was the wife who doesn't believe that Joey is um, – uh, gone straight, like although although he does say Joey does say in the beginning that it wasn't him who he wasn't the uh, the crook it was his brother, he just got right. sort of incriminated in it. Um, but it, and, yeah, and I, I at at first when that sort of plot line started up, I thought, do we need to do this again? Is it is this a plot line we need to cover again? You know, can we not invite people? Who, well, I guess this is a very specific person. It's not like the plumber who makes well, the pastries. This is a very specific they person. They did it. They did it again with the Rue McClanahan one, and I can't even remember what episode. Yeah. Or was it? You remember when yeah. Rue McClanahan was traveling with her husband, and she didn't know what was going on. Gosh, I and so remember. I guess it's like a recurrent theme. Okay. And it's always the wife, right? It's never the husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So far, yeah. And I I do like this one though because this one. Um, uh, she keeps showing up at the at the worst moments, and then right at the moment when they're like he's about to, uh, uh, Joey's about to sort of intercept. I, I think it's like the second in command type guy, not Pierre, the the other guy. Um, when he's about mm-hmm. to inter- yeah. intercept that guy, suddenly the wife appears out of nowhere. They're in like a, I don't know, like a, a warehouse somewhere or something like that. Yes, like all these trucks around. And suddenly she's like, Joey, what are you doing? And Greg Evans in the car, like, oh god. <laughs> He's like, you gotta get out of here. Well, they don't even help him because she she comes back from shopping early, and he's gone. He's getting ready to leave the hotel to take uh, lavender to introduce him to mm-hmm. Pierre, and so he's all dressed up and everything. And she had come back sooner than he expected, and she was like, "Oh my God, you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, and it's gonna be horrible." And I'm so worried. And he's like, "Get back to your room," or whatever he says. And then he looks at Greg Evigan for help, and Greg Evigan just shrugs his shoulders. Mm-hmm. And it's like, thanks, Greg. And he he does make a <laughs> thanks a lot, Greg. Thanks a lot. He does make a point later on, yeah. Joey, of of saying, "Hey, this is all great and dandy and fine that we're doing this. I I, I love it. It's 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 the best. But this is really ruining my marriage. So could could we, you know, could we? That's is, right. there is there something I could do? And then it, well, it's well, that just that brings up. So he asked Lavender because they have this meeting where they're making everyone drinks. And I love this scene because Lavender, who is the top man, is making the drinks. And he's serving them because he walks over to Alana Stewart's character, Christine, and he goes, here you go, dear, which I thought was really sweet. Right in, when he's in the middle of telling them what the plan is, mm-hmm. he actually stops to talk, talking about the plan to hand her her drink and call her dear. But then John Saxon's like, can we do something about my wife? And, and Lavender's like, we'll worry about it later. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I don't mind helping the government, but we've been together 20 years, yeah. and I'd like to be together 20 more, yes. and it would be really great if you helped me a little here, guys. Yeah. And, you know, he's asking all of them to help, and they're just, like, shoulder shrugging, and we'll think about it later. Yeah, and it's like, oh, man. That's something to really think through, I guess. I mean, considering the fact that now we've had three t- this is the third time we've seen it happen to them. You'd think they'd have some sort of contingency plan for um for this yeah maybe something like hey all the guys are going to do this this afternoon and all the gals are going to do this and and because they're supposed to be a tour guide why why not something like that you know we'll take the gals to see uh, stripping 
the strip and pulp or something like that. I don't know. The, no, this is we aren't in <laughs> Rome anymore. We're in France. Where what what can the yeah? They, there's something to take them to see. The Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower, exactly. And and um, of course they're not in Paris, but they could take true. them to Paris. That would yeah, get rid of exactly. for a couple of days. Oh my gosh, perfect. Yeah. There, there, there must have been. There must be something where they maybe if the show went along uh, uh, farther along, there would have been something where it's like, okay, we need a scene where they would, okay, if we're going to bring along another spouse, we we need to find a way to not have that spouse show up at the last moment and cause trouble. Because why not recruit? Why not recruit her best friend and say mm-hmm. your job will give you a year's salary if mm-hmm. you distract. Mitzi, who's John Saxon's wife, played by Elaine Joyce, for the entire time we're on vacation. And so then the best friend can be like, oh, let's go into Paris today. Yes. Yeah, you know, like, why didn't they do that? That would have, that's actually, uh, that's such a great idea, yeah. Um, uh, but in the, in the end, it works out okay because, yeah, right at the moment where Joey is about to meet up with the second-in-command guy, she Mitzi shows up, and then they spill the beans about what's going on. And then because there was a delay, um, Joey almost gets grabbed along with Danny. Uh, but then Mitzi shows up in her car and and gets him out of there. And uh, kind of says she can yeah. drive in France. Yes, yeah, she's impressive. <laughs> yeah. So so in in the end in the end it worked out okay, and she helped. And I hope they gave her a year's salary for uh, for saving um, those guys there. Maybe maybe not. I don't know. Well, it should have been zero dollars because she was a housewife. True, true. Um, Here's your your salary, Mitzi. Zero, <laughs> zero, zero. And they they give her an envelope with like moths in it, so she just opens it up and they go. Whew, 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 <laughs> blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, even though Mitzi really did kind of keep everything together, she's getting nothing in return. Yeah. Except um, she gets to go to bed with John Saxon every night, which is a year, worth more than a year's salary. Yes, yes. Uh, so uh, I, I, I guess I, I forgot if I finished up, but I, I think this episode is is a is a is a decent one, uh, not a favorite. Um, it, uh, it it it's weird because there, there's a lot of time spent with the two brothers, as it were, um, but they don't yeah. really do they don't really do they're not supposed to do much. Their their portion of the plan is. That um, they at like LaSalle's um, uh, like uh, I think I think like um, Waterside Warehouse District thingy. They're supposed to plant some fake explosives in some shipment in order to kind of incriminate Pierre and such. But what happens is Donnie Most's character um, puts some real explosives in there and ends up blowing uh, which, which, which is more effective i guess at the end of it um but um it, it doesn't screw up their game either because yeah. there's this huge explosion and that guy the second in command guy who's been kidnapped at this point mm-hmm. he says to danny what just happened and he said it's bastille day yes and yeah. um and i and he didn't even flinch like no. he totally like just rolled with it which is really impressive yeah, also, when Kirstie Alley stole that car, uh-huh. she she had no she was there was no fear. She just backed that shit up and took off. Yeah, yeah, and she and and at one point when when she yeah she steals what Pierre's like brother's car, 
and and there, there is a point where she does that thing where like she she kind of like backs up and she's kind of like doing a some sort of three point turn to get out of the space she's in. It's a wide space. It's not like a tiny parking space. Uh, but as she's doing this, like the guy who owns the car and another guy are like racing towards the car, and she does that thing where she kind of like like the last point on the turn involves her like backing up really close to them before she can pull away. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know. I would have gone a different way. That just looks a little too close to me or maybe gone forward and done a sharp turn or something, but she gets out of there. She's a pro. She's a pro. But the thing is, is that they're both really good at like doing what they are supposed to do. Like the characters of Casey and Danny are actually really efficient Mm -hmm. and like, and like they are very good under pressure. So like when, when John Saxon's wife shows up at that one scene, Danny is like he's frustrated, but then he gets right into it yeah. and he and he keeps things going and they're very good on their feet, both of them. And I like that. I think that even though we don't know a lot about what these people do in their personal lives, mm-hmm. I think that we're getting a pretty good idea of what they're like as people. Yes. And I like all three characters a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice that they're it's nice that they're so competent. Which I like. Any any sort of yeah. and any sort of um, trouble is going to happen from the uh, the recruits. So we, that's where you'd expect it to come from. They're just regular folks. It's a plumber yeah. who makes pastries. He's going to mess up sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> gross. But I wanted to just real quick. I didn't mean to cut you off. But before I forget, no. when they're watching the video of Lasalle. Um, you know, when they're first talking about what they're going to do. So Anthony Franciosa, we haven't really talked about him yet. So the thing about Anthony Franciosa is I can't tell if he's a good actor or if he's just good at being Anthony Franciosa mm, because yes. he has so much energy and he's so captivating as an actor that he could, it's like I said in the last episode, he could just stand there in front of a green screen without anything behind it. And I just can't take my eyes off him. And he's a little over the top, not in this episode, but he can be. And like in Curse of the Black Widow, I think sometimes he's a little all over the map, but in a really good way, there's an energy there. So anyway, so they're watching this video and and Lavender's explaining who this LaSalle character is. And Anthony Franciosa is lighting a cigarette for himself. And he does this thing where he flips the match in this really over-the-top manner, and it's brilliant. And it's just this little thing that most people probably wouldn't have even paid attention to because you're just kind of getting all this information about him and you're watching him on the monitor. But it's such a lovely thing that I kind of think he did just, like, what would LaSalle do? Well, LaSalle's really confident. Of course, he's flipping matches here and there, and he's lighting up, and, like, he's walking like he, he knows he's running the town. And I think that Anthony Franciosa, it feels to me like it's just a moment where he just did this thing that he thought kind of added to the character. And um, I really appreciated that because um, it's just fun. And I think he's not as good as Joe Santos in that episode that we watched. I can't even remember where he's not as good. The episode's not very good, but Joe Santos is amazing. But I think Anthony Franciosa is getting to that level where he's like, you can tell he's having a lot of fun with the character. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, what is this? This is like a year and a half after uh, Tenebrae, the great Argento film. Yeah, did, that with in. John Saxon, right? Oh, yes, that's right, John Saxon. Yes, it's, it's uh, Argento. Yeah. Wow, I'd forgotten. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was really neat, too. And that's a great Argento film. That's a yes. really amazing film. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, and Anthony Franciosa, speaking of being a really good actor, because he never goes over the top in that either, He's re- he knows what his limits are, but there's also something really big about him. He feels well, he was married to Shelley Winters, so I kind of feel like he she was obviously a bigger-than-life character in real life, too. And I kind of think Anthony Franciosa had that about him. 
And so that's what I meant was I can't tell if he's a really good actor, if he's just really good at like existing oh, yes. as a person. Yes. You yes. Know? <laughs> I can't tell what it is. There's just something about him that makes him stand out to me in everything that he's in and draws me to him. I, I um, my, my wife reminded me when I when I told her we were going to talk about an episode with uh, John Saxon and Tony Franciosa. She's uh, we're big Tom Waits fans. And one of our favorite albums is Bone Machine, which has a song Going Out West on it. And the first verse of Going Out West is, Well, I'm going out west where the wind blows tall, because Tony Franciosa used to date my ma. And, uh, oh, and, so good. So good. <laughs> and and, um, uh, and I, I like I, Tony Franciosa. I, I know him from a lot of stuff. I, was, I think Tenebrae was probably the first thing. I saw him in a yeah, long time ago un, under the probably. Unsane title. Don't watch it under Unsane, folks. If you're going to see Tenebrae, you watch it proper aspect ratio, uncut. Don't yeah. don't settle for anything he, else. You're really... He's in he's in the first made for TV pilot movie, I believe. Famous the name of the game. Oh sure. And yeah. um, if I think that was the first TV movie pilot, and I could be wrong about that, and I'll feel stupid if I am, but I think it is. But regardless, if you get a chance to watch it. He is amazing in it. He's amazing. And it's a really good pilot. And um, But, like, I just saw that for the first time a couple years ago. And I was just blown away by, like, his energy and his presence. And I've always liked him, but there's just – he just shines. There's just something – maybe as I get older or something, I'm just appreciating what he's doing more. You know, like mm-hmm. – um, I'm paying attention to what he's doing as an artist. Maybe I don't know. I don't. I don't know if that's going over the top. But there's just something about him. Because so let's. That's the thing about it. So Anthony Franciosa is not a Frenchman, right? And no. he doesn't even really try to have an accent no. in the episode. No. But you buy him as like running this town because if you compare him to Pierre, Pierre has got the accent. The, co- the commissioner has an accent, but he's just sort of doing something slightly with his voice. But it doesn't even matter. Like it just works because he just knows what he's doing. You know what I mean? And I, I, um, I, th- I think the thing with Pierre. Oh, and oh, one more thing with Tony Franciosa before I, I mention Pierre is that Tony Franciosa, of course, is also one of the three stars of of Search. One of my favorite short-lived TV shows of oh. all time, with um, Hugh O'Brien uh, as Hugh Lockwood, yes. Tony Tony Franciosa as Nick Bianco, and Doug McClure as C.R. Grover. And oh, uh, great cast! And it's and with Burgess Meredith also, and um, and it's it's a oh. it's a it's a great show. It's uh, uh, created by Leslie Stevens, I believe. It's from seventy two seventy three. Hmm. Had had one season, and and yeah. they and and it it um they uh, you know one episode will be Hugh O'Brien, the next will be Tony Franciosa, the next one will be Doug McClure, and they all have very like Hugh. Oh, O'Brien I didn't is, know that. Yeah, yeah, Hugh O'Brien is very much like um sort of a suave James Bondy type, um sort of like Sean Connery, yeah. a little bit older kind of thing. Yeah, because I've I've seen Search, the pilot. Yeah. That's how I thought the show yeah. was all about him. Yeah, and then Tony Franciosa is more like a retired New York City cop, so he plays it more like that. And Doug McClure is basically like a beach bum, so he plays it more like um, he he's a little bit out of it, slightly a, a little bit high, but he always gets the job done. But it's fun because each, each what like, if so it's it's a fun show because you never know unless you watch the show like five times all the way through, like I have, who's going to be next, and depending upon who it is, kind of. Um, uh, each episode has a different feel to it, but at the center of it is Burgess Meredith sitting in this rack of computers. Um, just uh, and sometimes Angel Tompkins is there with him, and they just sit there and they're, oh. they're in charge. And it's it's a pretty, 
it's it's a pretty great show. One day we will cover it on here before Super Train, because when we cover Super Train on here, it's all over. So we will cover Search before then. But uh, that's that's where I watch so, him most. So, what if Anthony Franciosa and Tony Lobianco were like oh. together, and then you got to say Anthony Franciosa and Tony Lobianco a bunch of times? Wouldn't that be great? That would be fantastic. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> just, just like saying those names. Folks. Just some 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 to think about, folks. Something to think about. Um, P- now let me let Pierre. Pierre is probably I I think probably the most French like. I think he's the, the most guys. French. That was when he did the I, audition. He came in and he said, look, guys, I can be the most French. I can be the most French of all. And he started to do like a Clouseau. That is not my dog. Oh, no, that's not. Um, I thought you said this was not your dog. Um, Pierre's weird because he the one scene. He's weird. <laughs> of him, the, the scene you see of he's him that weird in his home. Well, well, this is this is so you see him at at a, the pool and in the because um, when you see oh uh, I Tony, love it Tony Francioso when you see Tony Francioso walking around his house with lavender it's all guys with guns that you see in Pierre's home it's all beautiful women in bikinis that's and in fact, right the first shot you see from Pierre's house is the camera is down low on the ground by the pool like peering at thighs. And in the background, right. Lavender and John Saxon shows up, and you don't know where to look. I didn't know where to look, and then and then well, you see it's, it's a, well, it all depends, I guess, on where you want to look. Well, I knew I where to look. I know you did. Um, uh, and and so you see that he's one of the Pierre's, one of those guys who just has. It's not quite like that. The guy in Emmanuel in America who has like the women. <laughs> You know, each of them by their zodiac sign hanging around the pool naked kind of thing. This isn't that level. But he has like five or six women sort of just hanging around his pool. Just well, in I have to tell you, Pierre, Pierre is a little sexy. He's what a little you, sexy. I like that actor. What did you think of his, uh, his red robe or something? I thought he was going to become like... Because he, he's got like this red robe on with like I think like a hood on it, and I thought he was gonna like throw it on and become like a like a Jallo or like a Crimley killer or something like that with this. Yeah, on. maybe that's why I no. like him. He okay. has a he's got a foreign touch to him. But I want to talk real briefly about the pulsing. You reminded me. So so John Saxon comes and he's like, hey, hey, oh, hey, Pierre, it's me. You know, I'm doing that. You know what I mean? Because they know each yes. other. Yes. And so he's like, he's like, I want to introduce you to Mr. Lavender, who has a pseudonym. It's like Mr. Pearson or something like that. And he's like, I want to introduce you to him. He's got, he wants to talk to you about like drugs or something that he needs to get through France or something. And so uh, Pierre is like, this man I haven't seen in 10 years comes over and he brings over this man I've never heard of. And you seem to know a little too much about me. And so then Pierre's guy pulls out a gun and there's this really great shot where Mr. Lavender takes the gun from the guy, but they cut. So what they do is is the guy's got the gun, and you kind of see Mr. Lavender make a move, and then they, like, cut to Pierre, and then they cut back real quick, and Lavender's over the guy. He's taking the gun, and he's actually got the gun on the guy's back. So it's like this swift move, but they actually couldn't have done it. Like, there was no way feasibly I think they could have done it where it looked real. So they cut yeah. away real quick. And it's brilliant the way they do it. It's very smooth. It, and then he's got really the nicely guy edited, yeah. in front of him. Yeah, it's really because I had to watch it twice. I'm like, did I just did he just move like you think you see him move around the guy. But what you see is a cutaway. And I love that scene. And so this goes back to 
the idea of having lavender be a badass. So I'm on this kick right now where I like to see, like we're, I know we're in 2019 and there's a whole thing about middle-aged white men that we're like, well, yeah, maybe there are other people in the world. But at the same time, I like watching shows where they're older people, men or women, um, being badasses. Like The Expendables to me are, is like a really empowering series of films because it's all about that you can be vital at any age. I mean, that's really what the theme is to those films, as outrageous as they are. So Mr. Lavender is older. He's a little short. And you can see that in this scene, if you size him up with the two other actors, Pierre and his Mm -hmm. buddy, he's much shorter than them. But he's a fucking badass. And I think he's starting to come out in the series as a true badass and i can't think of another word for him and and he's very heroic and he's quick on his feet and he's smooth and he can like take care of himself and and i love so this scene in particular sort of um embraces that for me so i really like watching uh mr lavender in these scenes also he somehow picks up like a new york accent which is hilarious because rod taylor is actually australian so he's already doing an accent and then and then he's like hey you know i need the the drugs (laughs) over the country whatever he says and all of a sudden (laughs) He's got this like sort of back east thing happening that wasn't yes. there when he first met Pierre, and I love yeah. it, and it's so good. And so, the, so what I'm saying is, I like the scene a lot. First of all, because I think Pierre's a little sexy, and I like looking at him. The women are beautiful. It's a really great kind of glamorous shot, and also it's got Mr. Lavender doing some cool shit. So it's yeah. like a really great scene. It it is it is a really nicely edited moment when he overtakes that thug because there there is a cut there, but it's one of those things where it's so smoothly done you don't go. Huh? It's just like it happens. You're like, yeah. And so it's <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, that nice, nicely done. Um, uh, and you know, uh, th- there there is a moment. Um, and th- this isn't related to lavender. This is the this the bit where the um, Donnie Mo's character blows up the warehouse that he's not supposed to. And oh, they've, <laughs> they, they've got they've got. I, I just I just saw this on the screen. I forgot about the second in command is is like the second story of a warehouse and Danny has him tied up and he's feeding him like you'd feed a little baby. And, but, yes, but he is, and he's eating. He's eating too, apart from the end when he gets mad and he spits it out like a little baby. Uh, and, but he's taking but it. It's hilarious. Yeah. Um, uh, he, um, and Danny like goes to get him a drink and he specifically tied the guy up badly so he can get out. And he... Um, the guy the guy breaks out of the ropes and then there's just this shot where he like throws open the the, the like a loading door on the second story of the warehouse you know that a crane would swing stuff into and he looks around sees a truck go by and then just jumps out and then you just see him kind of hit the ground and bend a little at the knees and start running and i thought that, i mean that's a pretty good jump from that height yeah, and i thought he was, was going to die i thought i thought he was going to like fall over or, st- or like like hit the ground and roll and get up but no he just like like he just jumped off of a couch he just well and I, that one maybe doesn't quite work as well as the bit with lavender but i was convinced enough and uh and i guess yeah. maybe maybe he was known for his jumping that's why they put him up there they thought like well he can jump so he'll be fine He's got special actually the the french version of the nia recruited him because oh. he knew lasalle and he could jump <laughs> I'm mainly looking for a man who can jump. And oh, okay. I, I um, Tony Franciosa's the my favorite Tony Franciosa face in the episode. 
and I've got it on right here, <laughs> is the moment right at the end. So, you know, like, spoiler, their, their plan works, and they're able to sow dissent between Pierre and LaSalle, and it doesn't go well for Pierre. And then at the point where, um, uh, because it's, it's Cubans have hired them to steal all the medicine. And right at the point where the Cubans are um, kind of in a boat, getting away with the medicine, uh, LaSalle is kind of standing with his kind of turned sideways to the camera and he's kind of stroking his chin. And then all of a sudden, I forget if it's their lights appear suddenly or he hears a noise and he turns and, and Lavender's over there. Before we see Lavender, however, I, I, in, in my copy, it is 43 minutes and 47 seconds in. The face Tony Franciosa has is awesome. It's pure 100% huh? <laughs> with, with a bit of camp mixed in. And it's, a, it's, a gr- it's a great face. It's a great face. When he realizes that he thought he was do- he thought he was stopping a traitor and pulling a fast one when he's just had an even bigger fast one uh, pulled on him is a, is a very nice moment. Yeah, he's great in this. He's really, like, enjoying it, but he's not Joe Santos enjoying it. There's still, like, this under the radar. He's keeping it. But I think he's having a good time in the role. And so when you say, when you say that he throws in a bit of camp, I can see that he, I, he's just playing around. He's like, okay, this is a fun, goofy show where, you know, they get, this is the theme of what they do and it's silly and whatever, but they want me to be serious. But at the same time, it's fun, you know, and, and he's walking that line of like the drama that he needs to bring is like the scary guy that runs the town and, and the camp factor of the whole premise of the show. And he, and he beautifully, I know I'm overselling it probably, but I, I love this actor. He's beautifully putting it together and, and I really love it. And, and just real briefly um, talking about the actors, I really like Garrett Morris in this because Donnie most is like the goofy guy. That's like, well, I watch all the movies. Like he's really getting into the spy thing because he's seen all the James Bond movies and he's really getting filled up with like the heroism of it and all this stuff. And Garrett Morris is this buddy of his who's like really keeping him sort of like, you know, Oh, don't, get too carried away with this and they're they play off each other really well you know he's the grounded one that kind of keeps not completely obviously because he blows up that building but um he kind of keeps his friend in check and and i think garrett morris does a really good job in the role i really like that character too i think and i thought he was really excited to play the part because when i think of garrett morris i think well one he's one of the only saturday night live people from the original cast who didn't become super famous and um, and he played a lot of different types of characters, but he always played these sort of like been there, done that kind of things. I always think of him in that episode of Different Strokes where he's the Santa Claus that robs, you know, the family oh, yeah. and things like that. And here he's playing this. Yeah, this really kind of rounded, well-rounded character that I don't see him play often. And I kind of really liked it. Yeah. And they and they and the two of them really work well together. I think they're a fun their yeah. fun team, and in the end, in the final, yeah. uh, and and when when Donnie Most blows up the building, he's wearing a beret. Donnie Most is not Garrett Morris. That's right, he is. <laughs> he's he's, he's supposed to be a Frenchman. He's, and I, I love that because it's just like the way he's able to get so close to the warehouse so he can detonate the bomb is he just puts a beret on, you know. So it's like, oh, okay, please, sir, my my fellow <laughs> Frenchman, please just just step over here. There's. There's no background checks on the employees at the narcotics warehouse because it's yeah, all full well, of narcotics. That that they do say to them at one point when when um, the two brothers there are getting on a forklift and they're going into the warehouse with just like a random something or other, like on a pallet on a on a forklift, um, 
and they say, well, aren't we going to have trouble? And they say, don't worry about it. You aren't going to have any trouble getting in is if you try to take out, take, get out with something that they're going to come oh, after. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and they're, they're right. Yeah. No, they're right. right. So, um, I, I think the thing with Tony Franciosa and, and the way he plays it here is like, like the first time you see him in search is like, uh, I, I don't even remember if you see his face or, or if it's just like it's focused on like a bartender who's like saying something like, look, I didn't know there was going to be trouble or I didn't know I didn't mean to do this, that or the other thing. And then all of a sudden, like Tony Franciosa, like I, I or maybe you see him at the beginning. I, I'm making it more dramatic than it was. But all of a sudden you see like this guy is like sweating and nervously talking to Tony Franciosa who who's given him a stern look and then grabs him and like drags him across the bar and beats the crap out of him for something he's done. And so it's like when he plays New York City cop turned secret agent, he's very New York City cop in his way. And so I think like <laughs> some, some of the he, – he's not doing the French accent, but I think he's doing it like – so here's the way a Frenchman would do it. And that look when he turns. Yeah. Mm, oh, wee oui, wee. Oui. Mm, yes. And he's very. Uh, yeah. He's like, this is the way a Frenchman would do it. I talked to some French people and this is the way they would do it. Well, we haven't talked too much about Christine, who's the marksman. Oh, yeah. oh, and yeah. as she's fun. Um, it's kind of interesting because she says to Lavender on the way over on the plane, I am not a killer. I'm, I can shoot things. And he's like, well, we don't need a killer. We just need somebody who's really good at shooting shit. And so because it has to look like there's a hit, right, on mm-hmm. LaSalle. So they need somebody to, like, blow the tip of his cigar off or whatever. And I guess the cigar joke comes in later at the end, and we can talk about that. And so oh, yeah. um, – but, like, um, um, I forgot what I was going to say about her. But, like, like she's – really good <laughs> but it's it's like weird stuff like i don't fully understand exactly why she's there but I, I like alana stewart i thought she was good i liked her best at the beginning when she was doing the french thing that was the best acting that came out of her uh-huh. but like they take her to the brothel so she can hold a gun mm-hmm. like anybody could have done that yeah and and she they, she they really just need her pads. to shoot their cigar yeah. She did. She did. She has great hair, I have to admit. So she was yeah. one of Farrah Fawcett's best friends. And I oh. think about them hanging out together with all that blonde hair. <laughs> and it must have been amazing. Like if you walked by like Chateau Marmot or whatever, and they just uh-huh. were having wine outside one day. And you were like, look at all that beautiful blonde hair. They're amazing. Um, yeah, it must have been something. But like she's kind of in a way like a – like. I know they need her for the one thing. It's like what you were talking about when they bring people for very specific things and they do like one thing. And it kind of made me think about the aerobics couple that were on the boat. Yes, that's very specific. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like so it felt like it was like so ridiculously specific that because she she really doesn't shoot things. But then at the end, she's talking about like killing people like, mm-hmm. you know, like I think she makes a joke at the end. Oh, I meant to shoot him or something like that. And it was like, whoa, she's getting bloodthirsty, guys. Yeah, she's and, – and she – I do like – you, you don't – because you see her shoot the a gun out of the hand of the second-in-command guy uh, in the broth. That's it, yeah. And, yeah, and she does that. And then like 15 seconds later, the guy just picks up the gun and I don't know. So he got shot in the gun? He didn't get shot – he obviously didn't get shot in the hand. Because he, yeah, he shot in the gun. Wouldn't the gun be like super hot or so? I don't know what it is. It just seems. I, I don't know. know. But she um, says something at the end about shooting LaSalle or something, 
And like, and you just feel like she, you just feel like through the progression of the episode, they've created a hitman. Yeah, they've created a killer who's gonna who's gonna ask to join the NIA <laughs> at the end of the episode. Yeah, and she is. I, and I, I like so so there's, and you you don't quite realize how sharp of a sharpshooter she is until she's good. she shoots the c- cigar. I mean, because she's like she she they're on a hill and they're looking down at this is some bad surveillance because Lasalle has like. 20 security guys strolling around but they don't think to look up the nearby hill at any point yeah um at, at the two ladies one who has a gun you know and and so she's just pointing down there and she's like oh does lavender have to stand so close oh how close do i have to get as close as you can okay i got it i got it and she's like moving back and forth and they're moving back and forth in the sights and they're going over here and they go over, the, over there and then blam the end of his cigar flies off and i thought wow she is good because I had no, no we see idea. that I repeated. Thought, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm sorry, um, I mean to cut you off. Oh, oh no, no, please, please. I think I was at the end. I, I was just, oh no, I was just going to say. I thought she would like shoot to his side and like hit the ground right next to or something like that. I didn't know if she was just the cigar. That's just very specific and right there, and She's that's good. good. She's good. She's good. What and were you going to say? I'm sorry. That's not. Yeah. That's not phallic at all. Before I get to the end, <laughs> I want to talk about. I want to talk about at the after they shoot, she shoots Lasalle cigar. Her and Casey run down the hill, and I know that Casey wants to wait long enough so that they can recognize the car because it's the what's his name's brother's car, Pierre yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But she puts the gun in the trunk. Yes. And I was like, wow, she took the time to pop the trunk, put <laughs> the gun in it, close it, too. and get in the car. You know, and I was like, wow, she's really confident that she's going to be able to get away in time. And I just thought that that was really funny. But so it just occurred to me when you're talking about them shooting the cigar. So at the end, Casey, you know, had said, don't blow up the building to Donnie Most. And, of course, he blew it up. And so at the very end, she's walking with him and Garrett Morris. And they're like, oh, no, oh, no, uh, Donnie Most, you you did great and blah, blah, blah. And here's a cigar. (laughs) To show you how much we appreciate you or whatever. And then he walks out of the hotel and it blows up at the end. And he turns around and his face is covered in soot or whatever. And uh, and so it occurs to me, I didn't even understand that they were juxtaposing the two kind of cigars together maybe. But also I thought it would have been hilarious if like, it wouldn't have been hilarious <laughs> if it had happened. But I was thinking, wouldn't it be funny if you like got blinded? Like they thought they were playing this joke. And, and then they up. just totally shoot off part of his face. And it's like, I can't see anymore. Oh, my God. Because, you know, you don't really do that to people. That's yes. dangerous. Yes. you do. That's like something you do, like, in a Three Stooges short where no one's going to get hurt or something like that. Yeah. I, I, so I, I thought it would have been I hilarious should... if he, like, died. I thought I thought what was going to happen was he was going to take two steps out, light the cigar, and then all of a sudden you'd hear a gun go off, and the end of the cigar would blow off, and he'd stand there terrified, and Garrett Morris and Kirstie Alley would come out, and there'd be our sharpshooter, like up in a window, like two stories up, waving with a rifle. And they just thought they'd get back at like, him. like, I can do on. it. I can do it. Check that out. Check that out. Um, I can do anything you want. So how yeah. much how much sex do you think do you think John Saxon and Elaine Joyce had? Uh, on the trip, or for real? And just in their life. Oh, oh either yeah. it doesn't matter. I oh. mean, they're so beautiful. <laughs> yes, it's like yeah. it's like I was telling. I was like, I kind of wish that they were a real couple in real life. I know that they're very happy with their chosen spouses, but it's like they are just. They would have had the most beautiful children. Yes. Yeah. And they, yeah, they don't. There's no. Uh, 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 they they don't have any. Correct. I don't. I don't. They would have mentioned. And I don't think so. No. Yeah. 
Yeah. What if they recruited says, their child? What if they had a kid and the NA recruited their child to keep Mitzi occupied? That that well, that would have been interesting. Yeah. Don't say it. I'm gonna tell. I'm gonna tell mommy. No, don't do it. I'm gonna. <laughs> We'll Where give you a year of lollipops. Toys? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Where are you getting all these lollipops from? Uh, Kojak got canceled. No, uh, I think I think the thing I like about um, John Saxon's character is that he's one of those guys who he's in America illegally, but he's out on the street, in the suburban neighborhood, polishing his car, and he's got a beer on top of the car, and he's just hanging out, and he's yeah, John Saxon, all American. You know, yeah, all, all American. All American, and then uh, you know, Mister Lavender pulls up, and it, it goes from there. But everything ends up okay for them. I, I forgot. I think I mentioned that. Yeah, everything goes all right, and he is given his citizenship, and it's good for. Um, yeah, it's it's like he gets his citizenship. The um, prostitute gets a year's wage in an envelope to start a well, new life for herself. And it Joey out. Joey got his citizenship until ICE formed, and now he's oh, been yeah. detained. He's been detained. He got sent somewhere in South America, although he uh, he says he's he's French. although he's Italian. Yes, although he's <laughs> oh Italian French. I'm sorry. Because uh, I think he's supposed yeah, to. you're right. I'm sorry. You're right. He's supposed to be French. Uh, okay. I forget. Uh, he's so olive skinned. I just assume he's yes, from Italy. Yeah, yeah it, it is. It is weird because when it started, and um, you see, uh, you know, Marseille, France, and then it's like starring this week. You know, John Saxon. And Tony Francioso. Anthony Francioso. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, oh, we're going, we're going back to Italy for this one. No, it's all, it's all French. They're, they hired, you know, for the last week was the Italian episode, and so they hired two very Italian guys for the French episode. Hey, you know, Glenn A. Larson. That's why he was an innovator in his own way. <laughs> he was. Uh, let's see. Oh, you know, I um. I have – I don't have much more in the episode, I don't think, but I do have something on the um, – if I can find where I wrote it down. I do have something on the uh, closing announcement uh, that comes up. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, over the over the end uh, next week. Uh, you know, I think we mentioned like they were showing a James Bond film at one point and the guy from Good Morning yeah. America, whose name I got wrong last time, comes on. David Hartman. David Hartman, yes. Um, but this one, it's 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 good because it's um, uh, I, I forget they say something like uh, and this uh, next Tuesday, uh, a new episode of Auto Man where Auto Man has something or other. Yes. Happen. So I looked it up to see what episode of Auto Man, also a Glenn A. Larson show, was on, and that was Death by Design, which was the last episode that aired on U.S. television. Mm. Uh, there was one more that when they showed it in like Europe and such, they they included that one in the package, and when they put it out on DVD, that was included. But yeah, so about one, two, three, four or so days after this, Auto Man ends in America. Mm, so sad. So sad. But a happy thing. Uh, immediate and and next up, Matt Houston. The Matt Houston episode oh. is the se- season two finale, On the Run Part One. And I love the fact that, like, was Matt Houston a cop show? I don't remember it that well. It was a he was a cop. He was right? like a he was like a rich guy. He was like a detective, and I can't remember if he was a detective by trade or just really rich. But it it was always the thing about Matt Houston, if memory serves, is that he was always getting sort of involved in people's 
cases because they were always some friend of his, something, some friend of his died okay. or a friend of his was framed or something else happened to a friend of his. It was always like a friend. It was never just like a random person, which is why I don't know that he was a professional detective. Right. He was just a rich guy that I think ended up doing stuff to help yeah. buddies out. Okay, that's like a yeah. lot like the magician, the Bill Bixby show. He was a rich guy mm. who was a magician who got in, who got involved in stuff. Uh, and in the first half of the magician, he lived out of a uh, out of a jet. Uh, and then in the second half, he lived in the top floor of the Magic Castle, which is where um, Christopher George's character lives more or less in Escape, the great TV movie. Wow! Um, but having having, having said all that, having said all that, on the run part, the thing I like, I I, I don't know what happens in on the run part one, the season finale for Matt Houston, but I do love the fact that by this point in '84, late March. Um, shows like this, which are more or less sort of action-y, detective-y shows, were incorporating um, Dallas Dynasty-style cliffhangers into the ends of their seasons. Normally, you know, end of the 70s, start of the 80s, shows like this didn't do that. But now, apparently, they do. So I think that's kind of cool. Nothing to do with Masquerade, but... But it's Matt Houston, and he was awesome. Yes. Uh, So, um, let's see... uh... What else do you have on this? I'm scanning scanning my notes. I think that's everything. I was going to say, you know who Lavender reminds me of? On, there are occasional moments with Lavender in this. I think especially in the final scene where Tony Franciosa does that great face. He reminds me occasionally he's putting in the... He, he, I, they, they don't they don't look alike, but he's sort of doing the same sort of acting style that um, is it... I think it's Aiden Quinn in Elementary... Uh, the show uh, the, that just ended uh, like two or three days before we were recording this, uh, which is the Sherlock Holmes show uh, that um, mm. my wife and I watch it with Lucy Liu. Um, uh, and it's uh, he plays Gregson, who's like the captain at the NYPD that they work with, Holmes and Watson work with. And and some of the some of the things that Lavender does, like in this episode, some of his movements, some of his inflections reminds me of the way Gregson is on elementary i could be Hmm. completely wrong on that but i was watching at least this this closing scene where they're trying to officially arrest lasalle and there are a couple moments where i thought who does he remind me of oh gregson from elementary so not that that means anything but um do you do you think that quentin tarantino watched masquerade because he had mr lavender and reservoir dogs and it was sort of a nod to that i would bet i would bet you he did because that that's just kind of a great yeah i wonder I would. Th- I, I, yeah, it I is. Would say yes. It's. And I wonder if, <laughs> like, when he was a kid watching this, that he was like, his name's Lavender. It's like having a Mr. Pink. Is there a Mr. Lavender in Reservoir Dogs? I'll feel really stupid if there's not. I'm pretty sure there is. I, and um, I don't. I don't remember. I haven't seen it in so long. There should. Be. You know what? Somebody's gonna listen to this and they're gonna be like, it's Mr. Pink. And I'm like, yeah, well, but still, I think this inspired it. I think yeah. this inspired it. But um, and especially because um. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but one of the things about that movie that's so great is that Quentin Tarantino loves television. Of course, it was late 60s, early 70s television he was really embracing. But I can't, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if, like, in the 80s he watched a couple of these shows and, and got a little inspiration from them. Sure, yeah. I would agree, yeah. That's... Yeah, it's, look look at the cast. I mean, he's got to he's got to love the uh, the all the different uh, all the folks in the episodes and and, and things. That's got to be well. Yeah, John old. Saxon. Yeah. Yes, please. All these great uh, Joe Santos. Sure, there's lots of great faces. All right, so uh, I think if if uh, any any final thoughts on French Correction? Yeah, it's enjoyable. Um, it's like not a bad next episode after Oil. 
I think even though it's not as good as oil, I think they're hitting their stride. So I'm kind of excited about the next few episodes because I'm hoping that maybe they can maintain this sort of level that they've sort of set up for themselves now because the show is now starting to get really intriguing and they're finding their feet and mm-hmm. it's good. Yes, I agree. Yeah, it, de- definitely not the best, but there, there's enough good stuff in it. It, I, it for for yeah for being what should be a relatively straightforward plot, it does kind of overcomplicate itself at times. Yeah. And not always, not always in, in the best way because I, like I said, I lost focus on it a few times. Uh, especially a few of the guys look kind of similar, and and it's like it's like when you got a guy who looks like Tony Francios and you got a guy who looks like John Saxon. The other guys kind of well, I know you like Pierre, but the other guys kind of um, uh, become a little more nondescript to keep the focus. Yes, yeah, exactly. And then suddenly when we're we're in the brothel, I didn't realize it was a brothel at first. I thought we were in a hotel for a second. I don't know if they mentioned it beforehand or what it was, but I was sitting there watching it and I was like, "Oh, this is a lovely hotel." And then like half naked women like in in lingerie walking yeah. by, and I thought, "This is the best of all possible hotels." And then I realized, "Oh, I get it. I know where we are now." Okay, I I I got it. I got it. Um, so uh, that was the French Correction, episode 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. We got five episodes left, everyone. Whew. Let's see where we go. I'm hoping, I'm hoping, like you said, I'm hoping we go up and up and up and up from here. Amanda, uh, where can we find you online? What are you up to? Well, you can find me. Just look for Made for TV Mayhem. So you and I obviously do a podcast called the Made for TV Mayhem Show, and I have a blog called Made for TV Mayhem that I never update. But, like, if you want to look <laughs> at some TV movie reviews, you know, you can just do that. I'm on all the social media, so, like, on Instagram, I'm at Made for TV Mayhem. Um, on Twitter, it's at Made for TV Mayhem. I think our podcast is TV Mayhem Podcast. And then just on Facebook, you can find us at the Made for TV Mayhem Show. And we took a summer hiatus, but we're back. And so check out our latest episodes. We're diving in and we're having a great time. And um, I think that's kind of it. Thank you again for uh, for joining me. Uh, it's a... Uh, yeah. It's it's a good time. It's a good time. Like like I said, maybe a little overcomplicated, but eh, it's still a good time. Oh, and uh, th- this I, I will close out by saying the one thing I forgot to mention that they bring up in the um, announcements at the end, and this was a, a memory I'd completely forgotten, and I'm just going to leave these four letters hanging in the air as we go on to whatever's next. U S F L. And that was episode 76 of Eventually Super Train. I hope you all enjoyed it. Come back uh, next time for episode 77, some more here Indiana, some more Bourbon Street Beat, some more Masquerade. It's going to be fun, as always. Uh, where, where are we online? EventuallySupertrain.blogspot.com. Addy Supertrain 1 on Twitter. Eventually Supertrain on Facebook. I believe it's eventually supertrain at yahoo.com is the or is it esupertrain at yahoo.com is the email address email me at danny d-a-n-n-y slacks s-a-s-l-a-c-k-s at yahoo.com and uh yeah itunes stitcher soundcloud feel free to leave a rating feel free to leave a review again i hope you you all are enjoying the episode and um this one went a little long so i am going to wrap it up now talk to you next time
enter the world of Ho Lai, Reb Brown, and so many heroes named Steve. 80s Action Movies on the Cheap is filled with insightful reviews about the films made during the decade that gave us big hair, shoulder pads, and yuppies. This book is an excellent guide through the action movies that didn't quite make blockbuster status, or in some cases, any status at all. Written with wit, good humor, a definite fondness, and minimal spoilers, this book is a must-have for film lovers. 80s Action Movies on the Cheap by Daniel R. Budnick is available now at Amazon and McFarlane Books.